Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of 24-Hour Video Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Green. back to part two of my interview with James Murphy of LCD Sound System. We pick up this episode right where we left off with James graduating high school and terrorizing his family with his very specific ideas about what he imagines adulthood to be. <laughs> we talk a ton of movie stuff in this episode and we get into everything from his uh, soundtrack work with Noah Baumbach to acting alongside Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim. Also a story about Spike Jones stealing $200 from me that I'll elaborate on in the end credits. James mentions in this interview that his mind thrives sonically, that he is just able to create sounds that he hears in his head with great confidence, but he doesn't feel like he has that same confidence when it comes to the visual language of film. I thought this was really interesting because I really see LCD as being a cinematic band. The way the songs are constructed and how they're laid out in the larger context of the album feels like a movie to me. I mean, but maybe that's just how my brain works. He's one of my all-time favorite lyricists, and he can evoke nostalgia, sadness, love, and pleasure better than most master screenwriters. I think part of the reason why people love LCD so much is that in our heads, we're all starring in our own little movie, and when we hear these records, it feels written almost specifically for our own personal soundtracks. If you're a fan, and if you're listening, I assume you are, I have no doubt that a lot of these songs will mentally drop you right into a very specific time and place where you can almost feel the air and touch the people that were there with you. And that is cinematic to me. So let's get into it. Part two of my interview with James Murphy. I just want to say before this starts that I love James very deeply. He's like a brother to me. And I'm saying that at the opening of this podcast because I know it's going to bother him a lot. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy this. Uh, I think the conversation is great. I left it pretty much untouched. There's a couple of cuts here and there. But I just found the whole thing pretty entertaining, and I hope you guys do. I imagine you will. Uh, enjoy it. This is my interview with James Murphy of LCD Sound System. Uh, this is 24-Hour Video. 24-Hour Video. So when so you, 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 you eventually graduate high school. Yeah. Uh, you go to off to university. No. I no. stay there for a year and a half and kickbox. 
You I stayed in your stayed hometown in, and kicked. Stayed in my parents' house. I got a phone line. Uh, I paid for my own phone line. I worked at a, a I worked at a place called Mathematica Policy Research, which was a telephone interviewing place. It wasn't cold calling for sales, but it was like, you know, I one one of my big jobs was I called for months. I called physical therapists and asked them about battery questions on behalf of the American Physical Therapists Association. <laughs> How many knee reconstructions have you done? Seven. Okay. In the last six months, have you seen an uptick in any of the following? You know, those that was my job. So you, you did you you did this because you were pursuing kickboxing and you thought this is what you wanted to do, or I didn't want to go to college. Yeah, um, because I mean, here we go again. Like, I resented the predictable linearity of m my life was. I didn't like everyone was just going to like we're gonna guess we're gonna go to college, and I was just like, what do you mean, like? Like no one was making decisions, and I, I, I wanted to make decisions about my life. I wanted to be like, well, what do I want to do? Sure. And I wanted to make music. I was really obsessed with pursuing music or doing. I wanted to find out more about myself. And my father had sat me down and kind of given me the, a, a talk about how expensive college was. Like if I didn't want to go to, he, he had grown up quite uh, humble, mm -hmm. uh, to say the least, and he only got to college really. Um, because he was a very good student. Um, and he was very bright and his dad was like, wanted him to be the first one to go to college. So he's like, that was an investment. And he went to Northeastern university, which you work half the time. Like it's a five year college because half the time you have to have a job because there's other, no other way you could stay in school. Yeah. And, um, he, his dad died while he was in school mm. and he was one of the one of the really good football players. And he did not have a football scholarship because he didn't, that wasn't just how that worked. Right. And the football team found money for him and gave him a scholarship and that's how he finished college. Wow. And if it wasn't for that, like he, I mean, he, for the rest of his life, he sent money to that school. Like, oh, I think yeah. they made like, I mean, and it well worth it. Like he was just like that thing, we were one family and then we're this, now we're this family. Yeah. Well, you get to be like just idiot. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And so, he sat me down and was like, you know, w we never got money. We never got allowance. We never got stuff. Christmas, we'd get stuff. We got all of our needs were taken care of. Yeah. It was totally fine. Mm -hmm. But other kids had, you know, I had a big wheel that was my brother's. Other kids got the green machine. And I was like, oh, Jesus. You know, green machine, yeah. You know, I, I never got stuff. If it wasn't my birthday, my birthday, I got a gift. And on Christmas, if it wasn't something that was around for Christmas, you didn't get it. And it was fine. You just didn't have stuff. Yeah. Um, so college was this thing that he was going to pay for and it was for himself to some degree. He was going to put all four of his kids through college. They were going to graduate like him without debt and be able to pursue, a, you know, better, you know, it was like this kind of like uh, my family's going to do better. Sure. So he sat me down and was like, you know, before you go to college, I want to like take all the jobs you've got and write down how much you make, you know, when you were working construction, when you were working at the bookstore, when you were working, uh, shoveling driveways and you're, you know, delivering the paper, write them all down, put down their hourly rates. Now I want you to calculate how many hours of each job you need to do to pay for college. And we'll just take an average college. And so I did that and I was like, Jesus, a lot of hours. And he's like, okay, great. You know, now how many days is that a week? There's five days a week. How many, you know, it's eight hour days. How many five days, five day weeks, how many weeks, how many years? And I was just like, this is just insane. And then he's like, okay, cool. Um, now let me explain something else. You don't have any money because you don't, because you don't have a job. 
So you have to borrow all of this money. Now let's explain interest. <laughs> so like now we can do the compound. So I had to learn about compound interest and how like the interest was like how many years I was going to have to pay this off. And he's like, you're not going to have to pay it off because I'm going to pay for it. But before I send my kid to college with it just fucking paid for, I want you to understand, like, because to him, the idea of not knowing what money was worth, he used to say to me, like, it's not your fault. You're just stupid. You don't know what money is worth. <laughs> like, if I give you 300 bucks, you like look in a catalog for a $300 guitar. Right. You give me 300 bucks. I'm like, I panic about where the $4,700 I need, the rest of it, just to pay for the space and time of being a human being in the world that eats food and lives in a house, like, and has electricity. Like, you know, it's like money when you have bills is just a different thing. It's like a minimum river that needs to keep flowing. Whereas yeah. a kid, you're like, I got a dollar. You put it in a jar and that dollar stays forever, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, he wanted me to know, like, he, yeah, I'm going to pay for this, but I want you to understand what it is uh -huh. in terms of your own work. Like, so you could look at, like, what it would have taken you to pay for. Right. And um, I said, Oh man, I was a terrible student in high school. I never got an A in anything but choir and gym. I didn't even get an A in gym, a choir and art. I got A's in them, but I never got an academic A in my entire school career, <laughs> ever. And I was like, you know, always the same report. You know, oh, you could do better, not, paying, not focused, and, and it's underachieving. It's really sad. Drove my parents crazy, drove my mother crazy. Um, and so I said, I, I can't do it. He's like, what do you, what, wait, what are you talking about? I'm like, I can't do this. Like, that's crazy. That's an enormous amount of your money. Like, you've worked really hard. And like, I would never, ever trade that work that I would have to do to pay for it. It just doesn't seem like any kind of a fair deal. Plus, I'm going to be a musician and that's going to go great. So why should we blow money on this college thing? I'm going to stay in suburban New Jersey in a town in the middle of a farm and I'm going to just make myself a successful musician. That's definitely going to work. So <laughs> why are we talking about this college thing? And he was very shocked. Yeah. This was not the outcome that he had intended. And my mother was livid, yeah. mad at him. Like, you know, you gave him an out. Yeah. And you know, everyone was just like, oh, I, had, I, had, I had fucking adults from all directions, like pretending to just stop by and like, oh, so uh, where are you going to go to college? Oh, right. really? Well, you know, if you don't take it now, you know, you could maybe never get back there in the life. It's, it's real life out there. Like everyone would be like, my parents would have told them and hope that maybe they'd talk some sense into me. Yeah. All every aunt and uncle. The only person who get, had any perspective on it was my dad. I think he's the one who grew up the roughest. I think that's why. Yeah. He was just like, you know, I wish you'd do it, but I can't make you. And no one's going to make you do something that costs this kind of money. So, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, I said, if I want to go, I'll go. I'll go later. But I don't think that's the right thing for me to do. And he's the only one who didn't, wasn't afraid of that, really. Right. So I did some stuff. I made a record while I was still in high school. I made a record, a goth album. What was the name of the group? The, the band was called Falling Man. So if you want to get your serious on, uh, it is awful. It, I had made four tracks. We are sitting in my studio now and I should explain it there. Lots of four track cassette machines and lots of cassettes because I found all my original four tracks and I'm digitizing them now. The four tracks on review are way better. Like they're just like home recordings and they just, they have something. And then I went into the studio and recorded it and it was awful. And there was a guy named Tom Zepp 
It's like Zep, 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 Zep audio. And he gave me the pyramid of sound. It's like, I was like the bass, I, all my bass guitars were played through a guitar amp and they were really trebly and had a lot of chorus on them. Maybe they had reverb. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Whoa, let me explain the pyramid of sound. Like the bass is way down here with the kick drum, you oh, know? He, and he yeah. made it all sound like a, yeah. a jingle. Right. And it was like killing me because all the music I liked was like scrappy and had like reverb all over it and right. like it was weird sounding. And, um, so it was, it was not good. And I saved up all my money and I got some money from my dad. He invested, it was an investment. Mm-hmm. And I had to draw up a business plan and I had to do an investment and show, show him how his return would be and when I sell the records and it's going to cost $1.30 to make or a dollar to make and sell them for $6. And, and if I only have to sell a small amount to like cover, recoup the cost. I'll pay for all the recording. I just need help. I'll pay for the recording, the mastering, and the art. I just need help with the pressing, which was like 680 bucks or 700 bucks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I sell a hundred of the record out of a thousand, I get a thousand copies and I'm going to be in profit after. Needless to say, it was, I made the records and I brought them home in boxes. And then I was like, now what? Now what do I do with these records? I don't know anybody. I don't have a single contact in, I don't, I didn't know that there were record distributors. <laughs> I just thought you'd make this record. I'd give it to the DJs at the two radio stations I listened to, which was WPRB from Princeton and WRSU from Rutgers and WTSR3 from Trenton State Radio. They might play the song. People would just call me for some reason and be like, can I get this great record that you've made? Because uh, when they play the song, they just, I guess they announced my phone number. I don't know how <laughs> this was going to happen. <laughs> so what happened was I just had a thousand records. Yeah, and I gave. I went to the record store, and I said, "Hey, can I sell some records here?" And they're like, oh, "Well, I don't. You know, you can put them in the store." And I went, "Oh, okay." And I just went and just stuck them in the store in the F section. <laughs> Didn't take any money. They stuck a price on them, and then I went home. And that was sort of the end of that record. Do you still have copies of it? I have a few. Yeah. Okay. Well, years later, we put them up in the attic, which is where you, where you want to store vinyl. Sure, of course. It's a perfect environment. Yeah. <laughs> I came back and my parents had put it up in the attic. I didn't know that. And I had to take them all down, put them on the curb to be picked up by the garbage van because they were all warped. Right. Uh, also, what was I going to do with 960 copies of the Falling Man record? So, um, so that's, I did that. I tried to make a film. Okay, let's hear about that. I made a film called, I, I made a, I wrote a script called The Importance of Being Invisible. Okay. Yep. So far, so good. And it was about finding. It was a. It was a. It was a very self serious movie about a like a weird male protagonist who was nothing like me, and his good friend who was nothing like my good friend. And the good friend was like quirky and weird who he was, and uh, more advent, more like more like outgoing kind of guy to get you in trouble and the friend was more circumspect mm-hmm. and it was like how he the main character starts to remove himself from more and more life like stops engaging with his family stops engaging with friends just still has this one friend who keeps wanting to engage with him mm-hmm. and um uh finds that the more boring he or the more like withdrawn and boring he is the more no one sees him and the more no one sees him the more actual freedom he has to do stuff mm-hmm. um 
And then the day he kind of feels a relief of this freedom of being like, you know, he's going to like come back out into the world. He's stabbed to death for some reason in, in, a, in, a, in a train station bathroom. Wow. Like the first time, basically the, in, in the whole movie, no one looks at him except for this friend. Yeah. No one see, sees him. And, you know, that's part of it. He's just, he's become so boring and so quiet that no one really notices he's there. And then when he has this moment and he's going to be like, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to come out in the world a little bit. You know, yeah. I, I've, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay. And the first person who sees him, it's, he comes in upon something in a bathroom, two people talking and he looks at them and they look at him and he's like, someone sees me. And they stab him to death. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Two, two questions. <laughs> <laughs> I did not shoot the whole thing. I shot. Oh, so you shot some of it. Some of it's some produced. Of it. Yeah. Okay. And you shoot it on video? <clears throat> shoot it on video. Okay. Were you, and, like two, were you two the scenes. star? Yes. And the director? Yes. Regular Jerry Lewis. I like it. Well, I mean, who was I going to get? No, I know. I mean, that's the way it, that's yeah. the way it works. Um, okay. So did you have, <laughs> when you, as often, like, you know, when you're a younger person and you're making, I think you want to make art or you're making your yeah. first of some kind of thing, what was your reference point? Did you have a movie when you were writing it where you like, I want to make something like, I want to make something like this. Oh, okay. At this era, uh, at this era, there was sort of the a lot of the Hal Hartley movies were around. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, and I think, and he's a funny one. The people forget, like he doesn't get. I don't see him mentioned a lot. Yeah, like, he had a real, real moment. He, in that were, indie boom in the nineties. Absolutely, and then, but in the eighties, eighties, yeah, yeah. And he was huge. He yeah. was like he had like a lot of very popular yeah indie films. So it was like. There were a lot of how hard I, I really liked um, the Jim Jarmusch movies. Sure, I liked um, the you know Fellini, which I don't think I was you know I, I was approaching that level of quality, but <laughs> I think I had a couple more years under to get to there. Um, I think there was also these movies like The Chocolate War. When's that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like there's these movies. They're these hyper-mannered movies. I can't find it. It was published in 74 as a book, and it was made to film in 88. So, okay. And it is, there are scenes like where the two kids, or like I think it's like kids in a private school, like having, there's scenes where like the, it's like hyper-colored, like there's like blue light and like, one kid's looking that way and the other kid's looking that way and one shot is like with the one face, you know, zoomed in on one face the other kid's in the background and like a deep focus and that kid talks to, like he's like, you know, man, one of these days we're going to get out of here and the other one's like, I don't know, Jake. You know, like, it's yeah, like, it's I mean, all it's this hyper-mannered, yeah. there were so many of these hyper-mannered like pseudo-art films as like, you know, young people movies. Right. And I think I was like looking at stuff like that, like stuff that like, was very color like you know a lot of color saturation mm -hmm. or like black and white and then suddenly a color saturation time and then like you know pole, pole focuses and you know raging bull moments and you know were you shooting it like that i know i don't know how a camera works <laughs> i was i thought i was just gonna i didn't understand any of this stuff. yeah so i yeah, just yeah. aimed a fucking vhs camcorder stuff and went like this yeah. doesn't look good and just yeah. i don't know how to make it any better move on yeah. like i didn't know anything about lighting or sure. anything i just sure. aimed a camcorder shot a couple scenes and was like this isn't working out yeah. i also don't know how to edit i don't know what technology is required to edit 
I just made these things and then couldn't edit them. Yeah. So I just had a couple of tapes and I was like, meh, I'm done did with that. Did you try to, did you, in your mind, were you kind of editing in camera? Were you shooting just the scene yes. and then the other angle? Yeah, of yeah. course. Of course. Yeah. Well, and you were, what, 18? Yeah. Cool. I would, love and my to, friends, I would love to see this. Yeah, my friends, Gotti, uh, Marcel and Gotti, and the, Gotti works at Troma and like, you know, was like making like, oh, yeah. they make, you know, he's he's in LA. I don't know where Marcel is, but they, they had gone to NYU, which is why I eventually went to NYU. They were a year younger and they were making like weird, like, jokey Axel F, you know, like jokey kind of like gumshoe movies with Rich Cassone, a friend, another friend of mine. And they all went, they all went to, and what, what Gotti and Marcel went to NYU for film. Okay. Or film and art. Um, and I would go visit them. This, this is the, this is the year I make this little film. And like, I try to make this film and I make the year after I make the record. And um, I start, Working, I was working in a bookstore, and then I start go, doing karate and start kickboxing. This is, I thought these were great ideas. My dad was so psyched. I mean, yeah, I got us out of South Boston so you can like go fight. Brilliant. Like, yeah, don't go to college. Um, so I, I guess I just uh, started going into New York and visiting them because mm -hmm. they started school in in fall of '89, mm -hmm. and Ethan was living there. Ethan had just made uh, he'd made Dead Poet Society. He was that, that sailing movie too, right? Wasn't that? Wasn't he in that? What's the sailing movie? It's like a group of boys go on a sailing. It's like it's sort of it's like is it like an Outward Bound type of thing? Jeff Bridges. Oh, I don't know. I know he made he made he made Jack he made uh, White Fang. Made, uh, he right. made a uh, mystery date, I think. Okay. Did he make this? Is he a mystery date? I think he is. Oh, Explorers. He was in Explorers. That was the first movie when he was still, when he was still living in town before New York. I'm confusing the movies, but so he was Explorers, Lions at Dead Poets Society. Yeah. Dad, White Fang, Mystery Date. I don't know Dad. I don't think anybody knows Dad. The Ted Danson. What year is Mystery Date? Mystery Date is 1991. Okay, so this is before Mystery Date. White Fang is 1990? White Fang is 91. It's 91? Dead Poet Society is 89. Okay. Explorers is 85. So he had made, he'd made Dead Poet Society. Yes. That's when I... So, so it came out in 89. White Fang came out in 1991. Yes. So I think he probably made that in 90. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, so... I would go visit those guys and they didn't know each other. They were separate worlds. But, um, I mean, uh, so I'd stay in New York and then, I, you know, eventually decided I was going to go to college and my dad was willing to hold up the offer of paying. And so I went to NYU and became a straight A student. Did you really? Yep. What did you, well, I mean, I was, if I was going to do it, I, you can't be like, I'm not going to waste your money. Yeah, and, then and not go, and then go and kind of like be like, uh, bro. <laughs> like, yeah, you can get a B, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> did you? Uh, uh, did, did did was your initial instinct to go for a film, or did you know what you yeah, wanted to? do? I applied was? for film. Yeah, and I applied for film for all the wrong reasons. Um, I wasn't a big, a huge film person. I was a huge movie person and a huge book person, and I liked art. I right. liked to draw, and I thought film is a thing that lets me do all the things I like to do. Sure. I acted in the high school plays. I liked acting. I was like, I like acting. I like music. I like 
art. I like writing. Film is literally this thing that's all those things together. Yeah. Except for the fact that's not what film is. And I learned that later. Um, film is not the combination of those things. Film has a language that I don't speak. There's a like what you asked the you asked exactly the right question. I said, Oh, this is this guy's in the front focus, there's a deep focus, there's a guy in the back, there's a pull shot like a raging bull. And you said, Did you shoot like that? And I didn't even know that I was supposed to shoot like that. <laughs> I didn't know how the camera worked. And not just technically, my eye doesn't work like that. I don't see in film. Right. And I've come to realize that like I do hear a certain way. I music is something that's quite intuitive to me and i'm quite trained at it and i hear in a way that other people don't necessarily hear and so other people will be doing a thing i'll be working and they'll be like i'll be like oh i'm doing this and that's because of that and i'm like i don't know i don't know anything about that and i'm always like oh you just haven't you know you don't know the technical stuff but the thing is is they might not hear it yeah in the way that i hear it i hear quite into sound and i hear how it's constructed and i hear what's why does it feel close to me or far from me and all these things mm -hmm. i don't see that I don't see with the eye of a filmmaker. And it was just total ignorance of what film is that made me think I was going to make films. How long did it take you to figure out that that was... Well, they didn't accept me. <laughs> okay, that's now, a good start. Let me explain. And if you want to know what what like entitled arrogance looks like, <laughs> it's on a podcast. At least you'll know what it sounds like. Sounds like, yeah. I went in. I was visiting those guys. They were working on in their film school and they were taking film 101, you know, and they were like, there was like this arc of a film and Marcel was really obsessed with all this stuff. He was like, uh, God, he was less so. Marcel was like, oh yeah, you know, first you have like, you know, you feel like you have your conflict and then there's conflict for the resolution, but right. it's short lived and then the conflict has to fall apart again. Yeah. And I'm like, this is not how you make a movie, man. Like, it's not formulaic. You know, he's like, it is. And I'm writing, like, he's like, you don't get it. They've already showed us all the great movies and they all do it. Like, they all have this arc. And I was like, yeah, I don't know that they got to be, so to bad movies and they didn't probably get to those good movies by following this arc. Maybe they just have some intuitive storytelling instincts that are, you know, I don't know. I, I was very resistant to it. And so I was like, well, I'm going to get in, I'm going to film school. I'm going to come here to NYU. I'm going to go to film school just like you guys. So I showed up and I went to the film school and I'd never applied to, I applied to college in crayon when I was in high school, just for fun. Um, I applied to the Berkeley college of music and Berkeley, California, just because they were both called Berkeley. I thought that was funny. And the, my guidance counselor said, well, why don't you go to the Berkeley college of music? If you like music so much, I was like, cause that sounds terrible. And I applied in crayon and that was about as serious as I took college. <laughs> so I didn't know idea how to make a college application. Yeah. So I went to the film school and I was like, I want to start in film. I want to come and, you know, I got to get out of my house. I had a, my mother was driving her crazy. My dad was like, you got to get out of the house. <laughs> um, so I want to come in the spring. And they're like, hold your horses. We don't accept film students in the spring because the entire first year of film is these requirements and they, they're camera requirements and there's this requirements and you, you start. Number one is in the fall. Number two is in the spring. Mm -hmm. So no one's going to accept you for the film program in the spring just because we, do, I don't know, like we don't do it. Yeah. And I was like, you don't do it yet. So I <laughs> made my application and I applied for film for spring. And they were like, yeah, okay, let me explain this one more time. You're not going to get in. You can come in the fall. 
And I was like, I got to get out of town. Like I was acting like as if like somebody was going to kill me. So my mom was annoyed with me and I was annoying my mom and we were annoying one another. Mm-hmm. And it was making my dad's life harder than it needed to be. Mm-hmm. So he's like, we love you and you can always have a home here, but kind of get the fuck out of the house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't need to, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Like trying to vaguely defend you from, I don't want to cause myself trouble. You're getting me in trouble basically. Right. So that was not a compelling enough argument to accept me. So they, <laughs> so I, it, so at the end, after like many attempts, I went and took my manual paper application and brought it to the College of Arts and Sciences. And a couple weeks before the semester started, I brought them an application and went and talked to admissions office and was like, please, I applied to film. I didn't realize I couldn't be accepted in the spring, which was a lie. I mean, I didn't realize, but you know, I was told I didn't, my lack of understanding was not because I wasn't given the information. And so I, I said, can I go to the English department? And they're like, you can't apply now. You can't apply two weeks before the semester. And I'm like, I think you're going to want to read that application. You know, pretty hot stuff here. Pretty special. (laughs) No academic gaze. I know. Been just kind of kickboxing and roaming around and living in my parents' house for the last year and a half, but I know it's pretty. It sounds pretty good, right? But I had I was canny enough to get recommendations from a couple of teachers, the, the, like the one teacher or two teachers who liked me, mm. in which I said, "Please tell them that I was a terrible student because I was conflicted, and that I've spent this year and a half taking, you know, getting right." and ready to attack college with maturity. Like I was like, I was, this is the narrative I'm going to swing sure. pitch, yeah. which was actually true. Yeah, yeah. But it was like, you know, I was like, I need them to look at my transcript and be like, wait, like, you know, high tests, terrible transcript. Who wants this kid? Like, why do you want to deal with this kid? Do you need, a, do we need another self-important like dude to roll in here and not work hard mm-hmm. because he's like, Oh, it should be easy. <laughs> and, um, so I got in for writing and that's, you know, I did that for a long time. And I didn't, and I did, I always, I guess, imagined I could make films because I saw them. Yeah, yeah, sure. The, the way that people who watch like mixed martial arts are like, think they can fight. Sure. Uh, you know, sure. Like, you know yeah. I would just put them in a triangle choke. Yeah, yeah. Um, or you just panic and like run out of wind and just get the shit kicked out of yeah. you by anyone. Yeah. And um, I made a film. I made a film. Canon had the, a couple years ago had the, project imagination and they went we're skipping ahead here skipping way yeah yeah that's when i learned that i wasn't a director right (laughs) that's we're gonna get we're gonna talk about that we're gonna talk about that um but first a word from our sponsors (laughs) yeah blue chew um uh so you never went back to once you started the writing program you were in the writing program you you never looked back never 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 went back so let's – I want to skip ahead a little bit because we touched on a couple things that I wanted to ask you about. One, this kickboxing thing. You were a kickboxer. Uh, um, and and by all accounts uh, that you've told me that you were fairly successful. You never never lost a fight. No. I was a good – I was a good – it was the only sport that I feel like I was – I was a good catcher in baseball. Uh-huh. I was a medium hitter. I was okay in football because I was big. I was okay in basketball because I was big, but I was never great. I was a good swimmer, um, but not, like, great. But fighting was, like, the first sport where I was like, oh, this is what a good basketball player sees when they play other people. Right. When other people, like, they're juking and other people are biting. 
and like other people look a little goofy in there in slow motion. And that was the first sport that I ever felt had that feeling where it's like, Oh, I can see that this guy's nervous. I can see that he's biting on feints. I can see his timing. Like I can do these things. I, I'm, I have quick hands. Like, like I can catch things that fall off tables. Like I have, I have quick <laughs> reflexes. No, I mean like there's things. You yeah, can yeah, do. sure. I'm the slowest runner in the world. Like there's stuff I cannot do, but what I can do is move limbs short distances quickly. <laughs> so and 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 by virtue of that, you've become very interested in in MMA. Yes. Yeah. So for, for a, an embarrassingly long time. I yeah I think uh, I've I've recall you and i doing lots of mma watching yes um so i wanted to ask you about fight films yeah do you like fight films do you like films about boxing do are there are mma films does that is that ever does that appeal to you well all right i mean there's a couple of great fight films like i mean raging bull was came up earlier and like mm -hmm. it's just a great movie like it, it could be about anything you know what i mean like it is about fighting obviously and it couldn't be about anything because it's so specifically about fighting but like it's a really well-made movie yeah. it's a well it's a great story um it's a great it's there's great acting um great cinematography it's like and it's also that kind of cinematography you're just like it's it's really impressive mm -hmm. it's really like you watch that movie and it's not like it's not like quietly great yeah. It's like, and then you're going backwards and all the sound disappears. And I remember being just like completely wowed by like the, how much the director's hand you see. You know what I mean? It's not like David Lean. It's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, this is a very beautiful scene. And, you know, the more you know, the deeper you understand this film. It's like you can go in there a complete dummy and walk out being like, that's genius. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, uh, and the way he shoots the actual yeah. fighting. Yeah, the fighting's amazing. Yeah. Like, I never much like, like, I thought Rocky was fine. But I, I absorbed Rocky the way that I felt like it was supposed to be absorbed. And apparently later on I was supposed to absorb it with more seriousness. But, like, I absorbed it like, okay, he's got a big song. He's gonna win. Of course he's gonna win. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it did, it, it, I didn't love Rocky. It was a good movie. Sure. But, it, but I never thought it was like... It's like Rocky and Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Great. They're fine. Like, I like them. But I felt like Raging Bull was like a film. Yeah. And th I've come to learn that that, that that distinction isn't really meaningful. It's it's a good shorthand for, like, what the director's intending. But mm. it doesn't mean one's better than the other. No, certainly like not. Like, a good movie is better than a bad film. Oh, of course. Do, do you, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and Rocky's a movie. Yeah, it's like, <clears throat> it's talking about, like, literature versus genre kind of yeah like, like why can't they both exist like together? there are nor novels like gumshoe crime novels that are better than literature novels yeah for sure absolutely you know jim thompson novels are like you know yeah. or like the uh uh mr ripley books are better patricia highsmith yeah they're better yeah. books than other serious literature books yeah are. yeah um but i mean have you ever seen Red Belts or? Oh my God, Red Belt's awful. Okay, Red Belt is. What bothers you about Red Belt? So Red Belt is Red is Belt is David David Mamet, Mamet. Yeah. Um, doing doing mixed martial arts, um, jiu jitsu, jiu jitsu more than mixed martial arts, but sure. yeah, doing a jiu jitsu a jiu jitsu movie, 
And it was sort of early on in 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 terms of the the big popularity of well he was a, but he was an early jujitsu student yeah. like he's an he's a I, I'm pretty sure he's a black belt like him and, really yeah oh yeah he's a crazy guy um, David Mamet yeah wow I didn't know him that. and you know who else um, the dad from Married with Children Al Bundy black belt he's a great actor too long time Gracie really? black belt. Like one of the also, first he's a, students. He's a mammoth actor. Yeah. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. So I think they probably got into it together. Interesting. But yeah, he's a he's a real deal black belt. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he may not be a black belt, but I'm pretty sure he is. He's been doing it for a very, very, very long time. Wow. And so the two of them were like early students. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And I think uh, probably the Calif- probably the L.A. Gracie, Carlson Gracie, or, you know. Um, oh, oh, is that Horian? Probably Horian. But so... So it's a thing he loves. You know, yeah, Mamet okay. loves it. So he can be forgiven for like boring us with the thing he loves. <laughs> and Mamet, I remember being like watching, what's what's the big one? Uh, there's one game. House of Games? House of Games. Good. Yeah. I liked House of Games. Yeah, it's great. But it's very, it's very mannered yeah. in that mamet I'm just going to say the words. I'm going to say the other words back. You know, like that type yeah, of stuff. It's a very workman idea about yes. how actors should perform. And I, I, I mean, he's just Steve Albini for drama. That's funny. Like he looks like him. <laughs> he's got the same. They both have the same sort of like. Why would you do it another way? This is the way you do it. This is the pragmatic blue collar way to make the thing. Yeah, we're making art here, but just because we're making art doesn't mean we have to be artists. It's just like you learn your craft and you do it and you do yeah. it right. Yeah, and, this, and other people are just going to come around with their flouncy crap and waste <laughs> your time with like method or like feeling their songs. And the point is, is you just like write them down and you learn them and you learn <laughs> the lines and you learn the riffs and then we just document them the best way I can with the least amount of interference and then you have your thing and then I move on to another thing and there's no no reason to get rich doing it it's like they both are the same fucking guy <laughs> this midwestern unstoppableness that's like that i think both are it, completely blind to their own talent like steve albini is complete i feel and i i know him a little bit i don't know him well he's not we're not friends but i mean if i see him i'm like hey mm-hmm. um but i feel like he's completely blind to his own special talent his own ability because it's anathematic to his worldview like you just do the thing. It's like, no, you, you you do the thing. You did the thing better than other people did the thing when you were in Big Black. Like, you did that thing. You did a thing. And it wasn't just workmanly. It was art. And it was art not just because you got rid of the bullshit. It was art because you had something in you to say. And it was said a certain way through the filter of your taste. And, like, th- there's something intuitive about that and something kind of soft about those decisions. Sure. Like, and, sure. and like, I think if you're blind to that, you think, you know, and I fell prey to that. I went through a whole period where thinking like, you just do this, right? You know? And then later my therapist was just like, well, you, other people don't know how to do that. Yeah. And they don't have the instincts for that. And there's something to it. And I think Mamet is so fixated on like not being, have time wasted by like hoity-toity actors who want to do method. And like, you know, but I've never seen a, him allow, I've seen him have great moments but I've never seen him allow a moment that didn't have a point. And I think in that he misses, he's, he's shortchanged himself on sharing the pointless, some of the pointlessness in life. So do you think there that he took sort of a literal approach to 
Red Belt? No, no. Okay. Uh, David Mamet. Yeah. We can go specifically back to Red I mean, Belt. I'm not a Mamet scholar. Well, this so is, by no, any no, stretch I'm not. I'm saying the way your view, because, you know, there's that classic footage of John Ford being interviewed by Peter Bogdanovich, and he's asking him, and also, and, and, and by a lot of different uh, French New Wave filmmakers who are obsessed yeah. with John Ford, and they're trying to get him to talk about the hidden meanings in his films, and, and he's yeah. just like, it's just a cowboy picture, you know? Yeah. And he's like, looks at these people like they're completely stupid for asking about it. Yeah. But there is so much yeah, more to this. But that's, then that's the problem. It's like, I think he's either lying or he's <laughs> blind to his art. He's blind to like being like, oh, it's just, I think it's better over here. And not knowing that that, I think that's better over there is tapping into something that communicates with people. But Dan, do you think that Mamet took what he said and literally kind of pulls the poetry out of the corners and just does it very straightforward? I think sometimes he does. I think yeah. sometimes he'll allow things that are intentional. But like, and I was really seduced by that thinking because it's very controlled and it, yeah. it makes sense. But then I was watching things and I was like, one of my favorite moments in movies is at the end of a movie that I don't think is very good. Um, it's the end of Slacker. Yeah. Where they, they have the Super 8 cameras and they're running around and they're, it's playing the Strangers Die Every Day drone organ song from the Butthole Surfers. And it's beautiful. And it, it, it's, it's got this pathos of like kids running around doing dumb shit, making, trying to make art and failing and... and being connected to one another and like loving one another the way that friends do at these, that kind of age and sort of like, and it's like, it seemed like, like Linklater was just like, I want to capture, I don't know what he was thinking, but it's like, it feels like it's like, I want to get this thing that my friends and I do this thing that yeah. feels meaningful to me when I'm high or drunk or whatever. And I feel like he nailed it and I don't know what he was intending. It might've been an accident judging from the rest of the movie. He didn't always, have the right thing that he wanted to capture or capture it well. It's not like this is a, you know, masterwork um, of tone. Well, he, it's certainly in that film, he wasn't really a structure guy. No. Yeah. But that's fine. But I think yeah. like there was successful structure and not successful structure. Yeah. And there was like, you know, I don't watch his movies and think of him as like a great auteur. Like I think he's yeah. had moments and stuff like that, but I don't think of him as like, like that he's, I don't feel like he's always searching for that. Yeah. It's not like, it's like when you see a moment in uh, Terrence Malick movie, and you're like, you know, he's looking for that visual painting. He's always looking for that visual painting. So when you see one in a movie, you know, when you go back to his movies, like that's what he's trying to do. Yeah. I don't see that in Linkletter. I don't feel like, you know, what I mean is like there is something really magical about that ending, and yeah. I don't think that that's what he's focused on. I don't feel like I'm going to go back and he's going to have another attempt. At trying to capture an ephemeral moment in like through this we bought a zoo random beauty yeah do you know what i mean like yeah yeah of course like, i do yeah. so like but he but he did nail that and i do think like and i was like that moment can never happen in a mammoth film yeah i think you're you, you're probably right about that and i'm like and, and i think like that moment to me is like a lot of what i'm looking for mm -hmm. a lot of what i'm looking for is that there's there's moments that like have a lot of meaning to me in films like throughout. And they're just like moments that other people don't necessarily care about, but like I care about them because they're just, they're true in some way. And I feel like that hyper structured approach sometimes 
precludes the pretentiousness. It's trying to get rid of this pretentiousness. And I'm like, I need, I think you need it sometimes. Well, and also the idea I've, I've always balked at the idea of pretentious being an insult. No, I think it's, I, I'm a firm believer in the, its usefulness. Yeah. It is, it is annoying. So's confidence. Yeah. Like nobody's, no, no yeah. one's insulting people being like they're confident and ambitious. Like those, that's an annoying person. Certainly as annoying as someone who's pretentious. <laughs> like, those like the really comp like like Madonna like do you want to hang out with like twenty two year old Madonna like what a, I mean maybe just for the for the yeah, for the laughs but like yeah like but you know that's that was confidence and ambition but like boy oh boy that's hard work yeah and it's no harder work than some pretentious kid it's yeah. just like kind of they're all the you know but they're necessary for things to get done no for sure you know arrogance is sometimes necessary you know yeah yeah I mean you know. I've talked about this many times, but a lot of the most talented artists that you know in your personal life never gain a lot of success because they it they don't have those other elements. No, they're not they're ruthless not... monsters that are just going to eat the face off of anyone who stands between them and whatever shitty mediocre thing they want to make. I mean, yeah. it's like it's you know they're they're just not monsters. Yeah, and well, and I think they and they and you can stop developing by not having that confidence like you can stop you can actually shortcut not just oh they're really talented and they didn't make it sometimes they don't develop yeah. internally like because there's no food there's no there's next no stage yeah there's no there's no there's no you, you know this ding, ding dong who believes in him or herself is suddenly working with great people and learning all sorts of shit and the person who's much more talented and didn't is stuck yeah so they're not gonna you know they can sometimes it's not improve sure Sure. So moving on from the, the, the fight stuff, <laughs> which we didn't really talk but about. But red belt. I'm just going to say. Red belt. There's always an escape. There's always an escape. And he holds up the belt. I was like, it's just fucking, it's, it looks like a parody. Yeah. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, I, I, I went into it with open eye. I went into it to be like, oh, this is a topic that I find interesting and a director and writer I find interesting and an, an excellent actor. And I left being like, why would anybody do this? This is embarrassing. There's no, it, like, it's like, it's as if he goes like, yep, we need a conflict. Here's a conflict. All right. <laughs> you know what I mean? We Have need you... a challenge. Here's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah we've I... got to overcome. What's the reward? Get the red belt. <laughs> the... Old man, hold up the belt. Move on. The Next t- shot. The titular red belt. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Did you ever see the one with Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton? Yes, I did. Warrior? Yeah. What did you think of that? It came at a time <laughs> when I was like excited to see MMA in a movie. Yeah. Nick Nolte's in there too? I don't remember it at all. <laughs> I remember that it existed. You said, did you see it? I was like, I definitely saw it. Yeah. But maybe I didn't because there's nothing in my mind about it. Does he not talk? Is there this part where he doesn't talk? Does he, does he so. quit fighting and then come back? I don't know. They have a, the brothers have to fight each other. Oh, God. That's the, yeah. The brothers have to fight each yeah. other. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I really liked that film. Yeah. I, I and enjoyed also it. It was with two actors who, this is, you know, Pre Tom Hardy being big yeah. Tom Hardy and pre Joel Edgerton being Joel Edgerton, uh, yeah, it's a it's a ridiculous premise. 
but it, it it's it's, it's well, isn't one of them like the hardworking fighter who like takes it seriously and the other guy's like the natural talent who's a monster and who just tom, to, tom you know. hardy's like the marlon brando brother yes like, i'm a mess i don't know what i'm doing my yeah. life. you know <laughs> joel edgerton's like i just gotta get, get feed get, my kids you know <laughs> And they have to fight each other. And Nick Nolte's like the dad who just yeah. doesn't love either of them that much. Um, <laughs> the the premise is ludicrous, and and but I think they it's deliver also ludicrous. Yeah, ludicrous is in there too. <laughs> He's a scientist for some reason. Um, they uh, they delivered it pretty well. They yeah. took it seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody in it took it seriously. Yeah. Which is which a, can be which can be either the makings of a better film than it should be yeah. or a comedy, an unintentional no, comedy for sure, for sure. But the level of acting and like the filmmaking, yeah, they were like good actors is, acting well. Yeah, this is a silly premise, but we all believe it. Let's yeah. do it. Um, okay, so so MMA, we did that. Music, yeah, in film. Yeah. Do you like music biopics? Do you like biopics? <laughs> biopics is biopics. <laughs> I know. I'm still, I'm the ludicrous scientist. That's why I still have it in my head. Do you like bi- biopics? Uh. Are there any music biopics that you do like? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there are. Um, I mean, I thought the Queen one was fine. Did you? Yeah, it's fine. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's like, but look, I got a, a I got a type of movie I call an airplane movie. Sure. I fly a lot. Yeah. So, saw that on a plane. Sure. I mean, yeah. Freddie Mercury's story is a good story. Mm-hmm. Like Freddie Mercury's story is. An interesting story. Sure. I think the casting is insane. Like, like I think they got people to look more like the band than almost anything I've ever seen. Yes. I found I just like it was disturbing. Yeah, it did look like them. Yeah. Like the 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 guy playing Brian May. I yeah. was just like, what the fuck? Like what and it, it's clearly the band was super involved and they just were it obsessed. Was just- it was Brian May and the the bass player obsessed with getting people that like really looked like them yeah. and and played them as they imagined they were. Well, that's the that was my big. I saw it in the theater, and my biggest beef with I thought that that Rami Malek guy was very good, excellent. Yeah, uh, I thought I had some script issues, but the thing I thought was the funniest was that Brian May and was it Roger. Who's the bass player? Anyway, he was. They were producers. Remember, he's not one of the two main front people yeah. of one of the biggest bands in history. Why would we Why know would his, we know name? his name? Why yeah. would we know his name? It's the fucking saddest thing. There you go. There's rock and roll in a nutshell. <laughs> the but, drummer for the Stones. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> they had a drummer, um, but they were so they oversaw the script writing and they were really hands involved. So there's all these scenes where like they're part at a party and freddie's like let's do cocaine and they're like no we have to go home and be loyal to our wives you know it's like what (laughs) that's not what happened at all (laughs) and they're like (laughs) that bob that that was annoying to me and then the scene in the aids ward was where they sing to each other oh boy that was a tough one yeah so so i was wondering because i you know i talked to but if you know what that is if you know what it is it's a propaganda film yeah it's a good one well, this is why I wanted to talk to you about it because Rocket I Man didn't see Rocket Man. Saw Rocket Man. Liked Rocket Man. Fine. Okay. It's fine. See, this is interesting, and this is what I wanted to get to because there are movies that make me mad, and there are movies that don't make me mad because I don't care. And 
but as a musician, that stuff doesn't like. The, I don't give a shit about any of those people. Like, I don't listen to Queen or Elton John. Like, that's the, you might as well make a movie about like fucking. I, I would care significantly more. I would have a much greater chance of being angry at the Mr. Like Rogers f- film. Okay, because I care about Mr. Rogers. Right. But I don't care about Elton John any more than I care about like Ricky Schroeder or like, like it's no, I mean, like I'm not against Elton John in any way, shape or form. Yeah. But just because they make music doesn't mean that they make music that is any more relevant to me than to anybody else. Sure. Sure. So like, like I know a million Elton John songs. I think some of them are fine. They're good. They're a good songwriter. You know what I mean? But like, that's not my music. Yeah. Like I'd be super mad about a film about like Nick Cave, like that is, didn't yeah. feel like it was being honest because that's is, my music. This is the thing. So I talking to someone like Sam Lipsight about. Yeah. I asked him about films about writers, oh. and he was saying that one of his the most annoying things to him was watching those montages of oh, the yeah. writing process, ripping the like, paper up, yeah. yeah, throwing it in the garbage can. Um, then the moment the lightning bolt strikes and the eyes go clear and yeah. then it's, then it's and then he walked out of that. Yeah. And he, he talked about how, you know, the only person who could properly capture the writing process would be like one of those Warhol films that were <laughs> yeah. just guys scratching his hours. genitals. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, but so, so do the technical aspects of these films ever bother you? Are you ever like, does it take you out of it? Sometimes it only takes me out of it. If, the director thinks they've got it right. Like I, I've long ago given up on, Oh, this is a recording studio and this is how it is. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not going into the joy division movie thinking like, although they think they did that relatively well. Um, like, like 24 hour party people. Is yeah. The exception that proves all rules. But like, I don't watch a movie thinking like well, okay, well that's not. They're not wearing headphones like this. You know I'm, that I, doesn't piss you off. It. <clears throat> I have low regard for music films, so it doesn't. It, for it to bother me would be like to have expectations. Yeah, it would be disingenuous because it'd be like what? <laughs> These people didn't take seriously the micro process of recording, like. <laughs> You know, it's I. I don't care. Like it's fucking. I I I annoyed watching people actually produce records for real. Like I'm not gonna get. <laughs> like I'm gonna get mad about like the movie fake movie representation of how they make movies. Like I don't like watching people make records because I'm like, what are you doing? That's not how it does. That's not what you do. So you don't get sick of wanting like it. That doesn't put you off from wanting to watch a music box. I'd have to. Yeah, that, that I don't. I'd have you're to, not burnt on it. I'd have to think about it. I'd have to think. I'd have to think of some movies where, where, you know, my expectation was better. Right. You know, I'm trying to remember, like, I don't think about like what I'm thinking about, like Walk the Line and stuff. I don't think oh, about yeah. think yeah. about it. I don't think I remember. Yeah. I remember, um, the scenes in 24 Hour. I think it's 24 Hour Party People when when Hannett's recording Joy Division. Yes. And. He has to take the drum apart, drum set apart. Yeah. And then they stick the drums out on the roof. Yeah. And that felt real enough to me. Sure. It felt like it was like, you know, the, it felt like there were scenes that they were jamming in like 13 different moments into one scene, recording session. Yeah. You know, but, you know, the composite character yeah. of moments. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, I felt like they were real, real enough moments played real enough. Yeah. You know, like, 
but um I'm trying to think of movies where they really get into like the nitty gritty of make what it means to make music. Yeah, I mean, there's a thing that I always I mean, use like I don't a, care about Star Is Born. Like I don't, you know, like I don't get mad at that stuff. Like why am I going to get mad at that stuff? Like, <laughs> there, uh, the scene that I always think of is in the, the Doors movie, the uh, Oliver Stone Doors film, where they are rehearsing for like the first time, right? And they're like. Like, hey, uh, you got anything? He's like, well, I got this uh, samba beat. And then they're like, oh, that sounds pretty good. And then immediately Ray Manzarek starts playing Light My Fire yeah. on the organ. And then uh, Well, Jim, so they didn't write that. So it, I don't know why they're coming. Oh, up no, break on through okay, the other good, side. Good, break good. on through <laughs> the other side. Not Light My Fire. And, uh, and, then he's, and then Jim's like, well, I've got these lyrics. And then the song is fully formed in yeah. like five seconds. I, Does that stuff drive you up a wall? Or do no, you even give a shit? I don't give a shit. I mean, I know like, you don't care about the doors, obviously. I don't care about the doors. I don't care about Oliver Stone. I don't care about... <laughs> the only thing that might wind me up is, like, why is Blue Velvet in there? You know what I mean? Like, why is he, why is he being a part of this? Like, why do we have Kyle McLaughlin in there right. getting sucked into this nightmare? But, like... um, I, I, I mean, I guess it would bother me, but it's like, I'm so used to people being totally ignorant about how that stuff works that it's like I would be stunned to see I'm stunned if it feels real yeah that'd be more my experience right <laughs> like I would be I would have a harder time watching that with people who are like oh it's like that huh then I'd be like oh no it's not like that don't you know don't look at me when you're seeing this when the inevitable uh, LCD biopic oh happens, yeah you know are you going to be a producer on it or are you going to run away and hide I mean all I care about is who's going to play me. Who do you want to play you? Who I don't know. They don't make. They don't make. Well, you know, we could we could exhume Philip Seymour Hoffman's corpse. Exactly. Be pretty good. They don't make younger than me actors that look like me. I wonder who it would be. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Is like it's like, the, like, who are they going to get? That's not going to be like that guy's too handsome. Like they, 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 like they're all going to be too handsome or too. The, the only guys who aren't handsome are too small. They're going to be like wispy, unthreatening guy or handsome guy. They're not going to get like, you know, <laughs> dumpy guy. It's like, well, the guy that they got to play Elton John, uh, he's like, yeah, he's too small. And he was like, he's like muscular. Yeah. Yeah. And he, but he's also small. Who would you, if you could pick any actor to play, who would you pick? I would have picked a young Bo Bridges. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. But, they, but they're done making those. They can D, yeah, they can de-age him. Yeah, they just they they can they can the Irishman him Sorry, so he yeah. like stumbles around, <laughs> so he walks clearly like an old man, and there's something like so you're 22, huh? We just had to have Bo Bridges, <laughs> but yeah, young Bo Bridges, that's who I would do. I once got asked if I was a Bridges. Did you? Yeah, well, in, that's a, in quite the, a in the early nineties. That's a, was, that's a great compliment. I was in the Utrecht art store on Fourth Avenue, oh. uh, just around the corner from the Webster Hall, buying canvases and the guy one of the security guys goes hey which bridges are you which bridges i was like what it's like which bridges are you you're not Bo. you're not the other guy <laughs> i was like it's a pretty interesting <laughs> guy who's like you're not the other guy the, the more debatably famous <laughs> definitely brother. more famous brother but no he's like he's, i was like i'm not a bridges he's like you look like one of those bridges <laughs> and i'm like i think i'm a lot younger than I guess I look like them in movies. Yeah. 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 That's a, com I mean, that's, I, I would take that as a compliment. Yeah.
especially what people yell at me on the street. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're just waiting to be referred to as a bridge. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, so in terms of, you've you've done soundtrack work. Yeah. Did you enjoy that process? Um, yes, because of the process, because of the specificity of the process. Meaning, I worked with a director. I worked with Noah Baumbach, and mm-hmm. he's my friend. And he wasn't my friend when we met. I mean, that's that sounds obvious. But we met first to do work. Sure. But we be quickly found a parody. Like we quickly found like a kinship, kinship, and thank you. Yeah, uh, and so it was. My whole deal with him was like, look, I'll help you make your movie. I'll only deal with you, and I'm not going to do any of the things that movie soundtracks want to do. I'm not going to give away publishing to the movie. I'm going to write my songs, and they're my songs, and I'll take less money for that. But I'm going to own my songs. And they, he was like, of course. And the production team was the production company was like, no. And then yes, and um. I wanted to be like, I'm going to make, because I can understand the idea of like, here's this guy that I like, he's making a movie and I, he wants some music and I'll make music for him Mm -hmm. to help him make his movie. I didn't want to deal with a music supervisor. I didn't want to deal with a producer. I didn't want to deal with anybody else's opinion because that I felt I, I, I'm not good with other people's opinions in general, but I am good with someone else's. It's their vision and I'm helping them do it. Sure. Um, and if, like, if Noah said to me, I want like a salsa song, I'm like, okay, I'll make a salsa. It doesn't have to be me. Like, it's my friend. We're college. We we live on the same floor in the dorm and he's making a student film and he, I have a little four track. I'll make song that will help him make the movie. That's how I see it. And that was fine for me. Um, and so I had a great experience and that was like, because we, we also, our friendship, a lot of it was around, was around music and we were able to talk about music and we were able to talk about the character the the character it's Greenberg is the first one and about this guy who's like a music snob and like he's kind of an insufferable self-important music snob that's actually not that good and and I was like I was thinking about like we were thinking a lot about like what music does he have and I was like I'm gonna make all this music for this thing it's about you know he goes to Los Angeles I'm gonna make all of this music as if it was Lost Weekend Nilsson Lennon like I created like a character for the music which is like it's a rock star with some really nice gear at home, making music fucked up with his friends without an engineer. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's nice stuff, like McCartney 2 or like yeah. McCartney 1. Um, and like, like where they don't, they're not going to a studio. The record label hasn't booked a studio. Mm-hmm. They're just rich enough to have a multi track tape, two inch tape recorder at home and some microphones. And they, you know, they, they come over and they're like, let's fucking let's do it, you know? Yeah. And so I just made these things with like a really nice ribbon mic that's not, you know, super fancy, but they're but they're nice and they're of that period. And these two mixers that are behind me, the Altec Green guys, and I made everything with them. And I was like, okay, because these guys wouldn't set everything up differently each time. Mm-hmm. They'd just be like work, you know, they'd be in the room, you playing a bongo, I'm playing acoustic guitar, and then move closer to the mic. And so I made all these things as sketches first. Like I'm just make these sketches like that because that's a tone that I understand. And I know was editing across the street. And so he would be like, oh, I got a sequence. And I'd walk over, literally just, he lived above Benny's Burritos. He was like basically editing. Mm-hmm. I'd walk around the stu- corner from my studio and watch the sequence. And then I'd be like, mm. I'd be like, what about this? And then I'd go home or go back to the studio and I'd write something really quickly and record it in this scrappy way. 
and bring it over and he'd just fly it in to see if it worked. And we kept all of it. Like mm -hmm. I didn't re-record anything. We mm -hmm. just quickly were like, oh, this tonally works. Like if you put out this demo and say, this is the music, everyone's like, oh, that's the music. Like no one's like, oh, when do you do the real music? Yeah, yeah, right. So it was like, that was fun. Cause that was like, it felt like I was acting. Like I wasn't, I wasn't being me mm -hmm. making music. I was being this other person that is the kind of music that the character would like. And you were also doing music supervision as well, right? Like, you, so it was a mixture of your music plus. I mean, George DeCoolius is the music supervisor on the. Film. Okay. And so he's technically doing the music supervision, but I was suggesting. I, I put two. I I I said, I mean, any like music supervision is a complicated job. Yeah, yeah. For and sure. I am not doing that. I'm the, the the level of music supervision I was doing was like, hey, why don't you put "Shot Down" by the Sonics in? The movie? Right. He's like, okay, that that works there. And I was like, oh. You know, it'd be really funny when the kids turn off Duran Duran in the party scene and put on their music that what if it's drunks with guns, like this sludge rock band from the Midwest from 1982 or something. <laughs> What's this, this song called uh, Wonderful, I think it's Wonderful Subdivision I had to put on. Like, it's like this really heavy, dumb song that no gang of 19-year-olds doing <laughs> drugs is listening to yeah but i thought it was funny because it sounded like it sounded i felt it did the job of like an adult guy who's like no this is the good music and then you put this other music on it's like it's barely music it's just insanity and even though it's not true to what those kids would be listening to i think it's a true experience of the character of, of greenberg character of just like They've just put on this fucking insanity. Yeah. Like it's it's more about the experience he's having when they put it back on mm -hmm. than what those kids would really listen to. Yeah, yeah. Like if, you're internalizing sort of how he's. Yes. Yeah. Sort of like I wanted. I would love to shoot a scene where a kid's listening to punk rock in his room, and then his mom walks in, and the music changes to like. Like it just sounds what you not just what your mother thinks, but what it sounds like to you when she enters the room. Yeah, like the adults in peanuts. Yes. Like w w when I remember like loving something and somebody walks in and it suddenly sounds so dumb. Oh, it sounds so stupid to you. Yeah. yeah like yeah. you're listening, you're like listening to Metallica and you're like <laughs> yeah. you're listening to Metallica and you're like, Yeah, man, that's this is the you know, this is fucking serious. This is like this is awesome. And then you, you somebody else walks in that's not down, yeah, and it sounds like you're an idiot Hesher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it just suddenly doesn't sound good anymore. It just sounds corny. Uh, and like, I want to just, I wanted to kind of capture that kind of, that kind of stupidity or like that kind of weird feeling that you get. Not yeah. so much the music, but that's, that's Greenberg. Did you want to do, is that something you would do more of or? or only or under did those you circumstances. Of, yeah, yeah. I will only, had... I did a play. Yeah, with Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols. So he was an up and coming director. And <laughs> be, being an old hand at soundtrack work, I figured I'd give him a shot. Uh, no, uh, I got that through the same Scott Rudin, same producer. Um, and that was amazing. So like I'm sitting yeah. here with Mike Nichols trying to like, and he's <clears throat> he's hired me. He's said he's accepted me. And the reason he's accepted me, I, I comes out turns out because I, I finally when we halfway through this thing, I'm like what. I got to ask, why me? You know, yeah. I'm writing piano and cello music. And you're talking to me about opera. Yeah. What on earth possessed you 
to say, yeah, let's get James Murphy to do this. Like, right. there's no, there's, I mean, I'm enjoying it, and I, we have a great relationship, and the music is working, and, like, it's working out, but why on earth would you ever go to me? <laughs> and he said he went and saw, Scott Rudin took him to see The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Okay. And I think Trent Reznor, either as Trent Reznor or as Nine Inch Nails, did the soundtrack. And Mike liked it. And Scott Rudin, I believe, was like, well, if you like this, you might like James. Yeah. Which is the series of misunderstandings here. The series of like... I mean, it's not... I, I can understand the logic, especially if you're, you know... An older gentleman. Yes, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's 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 similar. We're 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 now continuing the theme of the drunks with guns suddenly coming exactly, on yeah. to what Greenberg thinks it sounds like. Yeah. Like I've met Trent Reznor. He's a very nice guy. Mm-hmm. I wrote him a fan letter once when he when when the first record came out, <laughs> basically saying that like I didn't like it so much and he should uh, you know I liked it had like a hole but the, some of the records other stuff was too poppy and if he wanted to work together we could do that. <laughs> He didn't write back, so I'm That's a little strange. mad. That's strange. I'm a little mad. Um, I never told him that, but I, next time I see him, I, I will tell him that. But, um, but I think we're very different in our tonalities. Sure. Like, like the, the type of darkness, and I'm not that dark, and like it's like, but I can understand like they both you know, rockish and synths. Yeah, you maybe like keyboards. Yeah. yeah, they're both super ripped. So yeah, totally ripped. So we go and see. Mike, and Mike is just talking to me. He had this way of talking to you with, like you're just, he thinks you're just much better and smarter than you are. Mm. He does not talk down. Mm. He just starts referencing, blindly referencing every opera that's ever been written. He's like, you know, like the interest, the beginning of the Rosen Cavalier, you know, and then that's a beautiful, and I'm sure you know that. And you know, if we would, we would, it's like, I just want something that's going to break the fucking heart, man. It's like, you know, like this is, this whole play is about dicks and hearts and, you know, like how they fuck each other. And, <laughs> they, you know, and we just, how do you get this to have blood in it? You know, I want blood in it. Like, you know, I want to, I want to care. You know what I mean? Like, I want, I don't want somebody thinking, you know, just how do we get, you know, and then like, you know, it's an amazing window into a a time and person that I'm so fucking lucky that I got to. He's a genius. Yeah, I mean, and he's also just like, he was amazingly entertaining yeah. and thoughtful and sweet and kind and generous and like. Is there is there a good? Do you have a good one off anecdote that he he said a story about somebody? Or well, I had a realization I've had over over and over in my life about people of this like. People of the same age feel differently. I remember talking to my old manager, Keith, and I remember being like, oh, I like the Beatles. He's like, I fucking hate the Beatles. Sure, because it's a reference point. Yeah, for him, yeah. it's like he grew up and he was a Stones guy. Yeah. And I was like, you hate the Beatles? That seems like a pretty, like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Pink Floyd, collegiate psych. You know, like, <laughs> he had all these opinions because he was the right age to have formed them when it was new and the world had not weighed in. Right. And I was like, oh, I was a kid, you know. I was like, you know, I dreamed of moving to New York, you know, Warhol. And he's like, oh, what a prick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it, it was like, oh, right. Like, Warhol's not a touchstone for yeah. you. It's not a thing you read about. It's a guy you had to deal with. Yeah, yeah. 
at a party who you found to be a bore. Yeah. You're like, oh, you're the deep underground art guy. Well, like, you know, I'm fucking Mike Nichols. Like, and I could talk to a, you know, I could have a conversation with like a Nobel Prize winner, you know, in any topic, you know, in in a couple languages. You're a fucking idiot. Like, yeah. he just had no patience. And I was like, no, don't ruin this for me. But, you know, he was, he would cry. Ugh. I'd play him music and he'd weep. That's amazing. He, I've never seen anybody who had access to themselves like that. Like, how do you get, he was born in 31, same yeah. year my dad was. So I was really attached to him because my dad was dead. And I was like, really like, this guy was like, what if my dad was like this and talked like shit like this, you know? <laughs> you know, he just fucking, he lived it, man. Yeah. Like, he lived the life. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and uh, he would, the actors would work on scenes and I'm there while he's directing, watching mm. him direct actors. And he would cry. Mm. He just, the scene, he knows the play. He knows what's happening. And he was so available to what was happening that he would just start crying, which I thought was crazy. Yeah, of course. And I'm like, boy, oh boy, like I don't even, I'm like, you know, somebody in my family dies and I'm like, am I supposed to cry? <laughs> like, like I'm so bunged up all the time that yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. how do you just like experience, like you're just like, oh, is it time for rehearsals? Okay, I'm going to cry if it's good. Yeah. And I'd play him music and he would just weep. It's amazing. And, and I learned a little about the like, don't let, don't talk, don't let anybody else talk to you. Cause Scott Rudin, who was producing the play, said some pretty in, innocuous things. Like the piano, can it sound, is it going to, this is the demo? Is it going to sound a better recording? And I was like, I'm using this little piano and I like the way it sounds. It's quite small. I, the play is set in like the fifties and I'm trying to like, record or the six, early 60s I'm, and I'm trying to record as if it's from that time I felt that that was like a choice and Mike was totally happy and he, and and Rudin was like can you pick it up a little bit you know maybe make it a little I was like and I was like okay and I didn't and I went home and I was kind of thinking I brought it back in and Mike's like what the fuck is this and I finally had to say like look I'm sorry you know like Scott had opinions you know he wanted to do it. he's like look Scott's a great guy but we're artists. And I'm like, all right, take it easy. <laughs> like, like, I believe in myself, fine. Like, I'm I'm not trying to be self-deprecating here, but like, I don't know that I can, without comment, I don't know that I can let this pass for like EGOT Mike Nichols. We're like classified as Mike Nichols. Yeah, where he gets to go like, you and I, we're, we're artists. <laughs> we mean, understand it's... this stuff. I'm just like, dude, I've got a healthy healthy confidence i'm fine but i'm not i'm not down with this i don't know how to this is not processable like you know like i'm not listening you know so anyways i'm so i'm trying to write compositional music i'm trying to write like opera and classical music for him yeah and it was great it was amazing that's incredible i mean what a great thing to have that experience with him before oh my god i'm passed away yeah and it, i felt it was crazy that when he died it, it didn't seem possible to me because he was just like yeah. One of the most alive people I had ever met. Yeah. Just, I mean, it, it, one of the most enviable careers. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he once said to me, he's like, he was into horses. He's like, I got into horses. You know, like, <laughs> was buying and selling horses. We'd put on, we, we, you know, we'd just, I'd sell them and we'd have auctions. We'd have these events and like, there'd be barns with light shows and the music would cost $100,000 to throw these stupid parties. And the horse would come out and look amazing. You'd have to make them look amazing and to sell them. And I was like looking at him and he goes, look, I've been trying to get rid of money 
<laughs> I'm so bad with money. I've been trying to get rid of this garbage for my whole life, and they just keep throwing it at me. <laughs> like, it's just like, hey, how do you fuck with that? You know? No, you can't. <laughs> I've you been can't. trying to get rid of this garbage for my whole life. Who's replacing keep... these people, too? Nobody's replacing these yeah. people. <laughs> no, like no one's one... replaced. Noah about no about and I have this conversation all the time about like where's what's the next one? Yeah, and like also that we have the joke about the guy who's like he just loved the ladies. <laughs> that whole generation where like they have interviews and they're like, oh, <laughs> he did love the ladies. Yeah, yeah. You know, he always came home. Yeah, and you know, they, they, he always thanks his my their long suffering wife. Yeah, like, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like. You know, like just um, like imagine getting away with any of that oh, shit, God. like That's insanity. The, yeah, yeah. Like so he's an artist. You know what are you gonna do? It's like I don't know. Maybe keep your dick in your pants for half an hour. <laughs> like I don't know that like being a great artist means that like it's very convenient that that actually like whatever hedonistic want you have happens yeah. to be excused by being a great artist. Well, most great artists didn't get laid until they got famous. So. Yeah, and then they were like, "I'm in." Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and now no one will tell me I'm bad at this. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly the problem. Um, and so, in terms of film soundtracks, do you, <sighs> when you think of film soundtracks, I tend to not like them. Okay, um, let's get into that a little bit. Third, th- third man, though. I mean, there's there's soundtracks that are just golden. So, so I mean, in terms of, do you prefer a scored soundtrack to a pop music scored soundtrack? I historically, unless it's like the third, unless it's like the third man, which is just all that like oud, that all that guitar type instrument, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's fucking amazing. Yeah. When it's great, it's great, great, great. But I think we fell into this, um, and I think some of it's the fault of good people and great people. I think some of it's the fault of like Morricone. Or like, you know, like people who are excellent composers of film music that worked both in like pulp and in then like the mission, you know, like that a melodrama in soundtracks became manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I dislike manipulative soundtracks. I dislike, I feel like it's disrespectful to the, cinematographer and to the acting and the writing often like i feel like somebody goes you know what it needs help it needs can we make it sadder yeah and i find that like music is such a powerful manipulator it is the most music and smell are just these weird irrational things that get to you yeah and i I feel often that they're cheap Mm. and i don't like I, i feel like if the sadness in the score is greater than the sadness in the moment, I feel the bottom falls out in me. Mm-hmm. I just feel like I feel like I'm being lied to, mm-hmm. and I don't like it. I don't feel sad. I feel angry. I feel betrayed, and I feel like most films do this. Most films, you know what, Dad? You know, it's it's like it's this pads of strings, mm-hmm. and this replacement for a good storytelling mm-hmm. uh, emotionally. And I dislike it. They're also, they're also, imp- I think they're also often <clears throat> ways of feeding your impatience. Like it might, 
you might want that person to wander around the kitchen for another minute or two before you really understand the subtle sadness. And if it's in silence, you need a little more time to understand that they're broken. Unless you want to just have them fall down and cry. Right. And so, like, just having someone put their hand on the table and look at the table and you play a sad chord and then you cut to the next scene. And I feel like, no, let me hang out with this person for a minute. Let me see this person... Uh, my favorite film moments are always the un like the things that are, you're not supposed to see. I mean, and I think soundtracks are often a way to like not have to do that stuff. A bit of a shorthand. To... Yeah, it's a it's a it's a cheat. Do you do you find that 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 happens also with pop music scores? Yes, but pop music I feel can be forgiven because it exists in its own context and it brings that context in. I think people got too into like what they call the needle drops in the biz. Mm. Um, <laughs> Why do you explain that? I don't know. That's what everybody's, I, I was puzzled. Somebody said, Oh, it's a needle drop here of this. And I was like, what? I'm, Oh, I guess you dropped a needle. And then somebody else said it. And I was like, are we all just saying this? Is this a thing people <laughs> think? Do we need to say it? Just say a song. Like, right. <laughs> and I think that needle drop means a song that you might know. Yeah. Rather than score. And uh, I really liked the, the way you could juxtapose things with existing songs that have existing stories behind mm-hmm. them and have existing stuff. You know, I've always found that interesting. Um, I remember this movie that used uh, Who Knows Where the Time Goes by Nina Simone, like live recording from Black Gold, at the end it is um God, it's a movie about a maybe it's a movie about south american dictatorship the dancer upstairs it's called the dancer upstairs yeah i like that film hmm. uh, uh it's 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 the end of the dancer upstairs is 2002 a crime drama uh Javier Bardem. Um, oh, this is ringing a bell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like sort of like she's a dancer who's like maybe she's against the government and maybe she's not, but she's also like tied to the she's like the dance instructor to the somebody and mm. <clears throat> and it's the end of the film they just play her performance of Who Knows Where the Time Goes, and it's. It's so out of context, but so beautiful. And it's got the, it's the live version, which has her talking and like, you know, beforehand, yeah. like, you know, time's a dictator. You know, you can't mm. you go to walk, drink your coffee by the clock. And you, you know, there's this whole like mm. thing, little intro. And I, I like that. I think that's really effective to carry in all that extra information in like a little moment. And also, how about when you, your own personal attachments to certain songs, you're bringing that into a film yeah. that they play too. Yeah. Do you think that that... It's a little out of control and I like that. Yeah. I think you're kind of, as a director, you're just like letting that be out of control. Yeah. Um, as opposed to being like, I want sadness, but cue the sad stuff. Yeah. Do you think there's anybody who's doing <clears throat> doing scores that don't treat it that way? Do you, do you have you... I don't pay attention to that. Okay. But um, well, I won't ask you specifics. No, but go, 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 go. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, the some of the scores that I've, um, the the Johnny Greenwood scores for the Paul Thomas Anderson films, the past couple, um, 
the did he do dead man no dead man is neil young oh right the jim jarmusch film yeah yeah, yeah that's neil young yeah that's all like guitar solos and yeah. stuff that's pretty good actually yeah um and the 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 did you watch um that adam sandler diamond uh where he's a diamond merchant yes did you enjoy that film no you hated it i hated that movie what and what did you think of the soundtrack do you remember it We can just leave us. <laughs> who, who did it? It's this Onotronics Point Never or something is the guy's name. Onotronics right? Point Never. Yeah, I think that's the guy who does them. And, oh, yeah. and he did the the previous one with Robert Pattinson. Um, and I thought they were pretty interesting scores. Oh, um, I'll have to pay more attention. And I thought that I think the Johnny Greenwood scores for uh, Phantom Thread and There Will Be Blood. I haven't seen Phantom Thread. <sighs> and that's all orchestral stuff. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Cool. It's like chamber music. Yeah. Um, I'll check it out. And I, you know, I'm not, as they say, a Radiohead guy. Yeah. <laughs> At all. But I think I, Johnny a, Greenwood wants people who aren't Radiohead guys. To I like think that's, and I think they're pretty, they're pretty kind of old, a little bit more of an old Hollywood style of soundtracking film. Well, he's, he, you know, he does his homework on, avant-garde composers that's kind of what his thing that's the 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 there will be blood stuff is is like xenakis and and it has a lot of that atonal yeah almost horror movies yeah it's interesting um all right well let's let's do i i kind of want to talk about your acting career (laughs) (laughs) i never even thought about that as part of this yeah well i mean you have done every aspect of filmmaking You've done, done, haven't done them well, but yeah, <laughs> that's, that's not up to you. Yeah. Um, so you directed, you directed a short film. Yeah. Um, great experience. Yeah. Great experience. And made you realize this is not your medium. Not that it made me real. I just real. it made me realize how blind I was to the depth of it. Right. Like I was like, Oh, like, like Noah knows movies. Like I know music. Yeah. And like, not like he's seen a lot of them, but he's kind of picked them apart in his brain and, and can speak languages that are quite subtle about like this little bit and like why that's framed like that and why this happens there. And I don't have that. Yeah. I don't have that encyclopedia in my brain. And, nor, and, and I think you either got to have that or just an eye. Yeah. Like just you are a visual person in that way. Yeah. For moving pictures. And I'm not. And so I struggle. I struggled. I was like really learning I just had, I was like, do the scene again, do the scene again. And Manuel, I had a great, you know, you know, Manuel Claro, uh, mm-hmm. who's the cinematographer who shot Melancholia and does a large bunch of films. And he's like a future, future guest on the podcast. Is he? Gotta be. He's the best. And so I was just like, I was in his hands and he was kind of telling me how a movie gets made. Mm. And I, but he was also like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, it's okay to do that. He's like, sure. Who cares? I'll just shoot it again. I was like, just keep following him. Shoot it again. Follow him. Shoot it again. Follow him. And just like have keep to the have the actresses do the whole scene over and over again. Um, and I don't know what how other people do it, but that's what I did, and I liked it because there was enough chance to find stuff that I thought was nice. But but I was like, oh boy, I'd want to. Someone's going to give me millions of dollars and tell me to tell a story. I want to know what I'm fucking doing. Was part of it that you just didn't know some of the basic rules. I didn't so, know anything. Yeah. I didn't know anything. Yeah. I, not, not just the basic rules. I also hadn't watched films with an understanding of how to make them. Right. 
you know, I watched Police Story, the Kurosawa movie, when the, and there yeah. was I read about how like he shot everything from a kneeling position because that was like a part of like what you would if you were a guest in someone's home, you would be kneel, you would be in that position, yeah. and that's the height. And I was like, I'm making this. My film was in Japan, and I was like, I, I was like, maybe I should do that. And my mom was like, No, why would we do that? <laughs> okay. Because I was like, I don't know. like Yeah, it's a cool idea. Yeah, but yeah. like I was like, it was a good idea for him. Why don't I do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so instead, uh, you know, we, we just kind of winged it. And you wrote the screenplay. Wrote the screenplay. And you've written a few, you've worked on a few screenplays. Yes, I have written, written um, a few screenplays. Do you, what do you, how do you find that process? Hard. Yeah. Um, you know, it's blank page stuff. Yeah. I, I find it easier to write stories and scenes dialogue than i do to write a script i also get bogged down in the technicality of it like i get bogged down in like what do i indent twice is the, is sure. the character name all capitalized like right. i find all that really annoying um and i haven't done it enough in my own way which i should probably just sit and write yeah. what i think is going to happen yeah and then start breaking it out into a script but i don't i start you know yeah i start with like you know when i was a kid i would make comic books right mm -hmm. and I thought the best way to do that was to sit down, draw a bunch of squares, and then come up with the story and final drawings in the comic book squares. Yeah, yeah. And like, not you get older and you're like, that's not how anybody does anything. <laughs> you know, you write a fucking story, you have an idea, and you write it down, and you think about where you want to be, and then you start looking at like how you want to sketch that out, and then. I just didn't know that you did that. So I would be like, oh, I'm going to make a movie now. So like, I would imagine that you sat down yeah. and you typed interior daylight and then just wrote a movie yeah. like, <clears throat> and whatever you got to get it done then. But I think that's sort of an interesting thing about making art in general is that especially when you're a bit isolated yeah, is you make a thing the way you think it's supposed to, you don't yeah. know how to make it. And then somewhere down the road, you develop a point of view and then someone watches you work and they say, why are you doing it like that? You go, I don't know. You can just do it like this. And you're like, oh. <laughs> but then the, your weird yeah. eccentricities of making something get folded into something that's like. Yeah. A, I mean, that's, oh, I mean, certainly musically, as an engineer, as a recording, it's like I'm completely autodidactic yeah. of how you make music. I don't know how it's done. And when I first worked with a real engineer, I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, I had no idea that's how you did that. Okay. Got it. <laughs> So, so in terms of the acting part of it, you you liked acting as a kid. Eh, I did fine. I liked it fine. It was something to do. Yeah, it, it was. was a, it was a creative expression that was available to you at the time. I didn't feel like it was a creative expression. I just mm. liked hanging out with people. Okay, I liked being in the play. Yeah, and I got really. Um, I tried out for like the eighth grade play, and I didn't get in it. And Ethan got the lead, bastard. But I didn't get in it, and. I was like, man, nah, play's not for me. Mm. Then 10th grade rolled around and I tried out for, and th th there was like a real, like, you know, you were in the drama class and you just, and, I and we had a new drama director for the first time. It was different. Somebody didn't, they didn't teach in the school. They weren't part of the history. And I tried out and I got one of the main parts. I was in 10th grade. And then I was like, oh, well, I can, I, I can just jump in and do this. I don't have to do like all this work, like leg work. So I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the process. And there were older kids. And I got to hang out with them and get close to them. And I got to sit up late at night and drink coffee with people. And it felt cool. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I liked about it. I yeah. didn't, I, you know, learning lines sucked. Being on stage, I wasn't particularly good at it. I, I was good at one thing. I was a big 
guy with an adult sounding voice that could shave. So I looked like a man. Right. And I didn't have to be the guy with like, they sprayed the gray and the sideburns <laughs> and be like, well, you know what, Mrs. Jenkins, we're going to have to be the guys. Kids would do these voices to sound like old people or yeah. adults. They'd put on these, they'd put on like bellies and like walk around and be like, I'm a man. Yeah. And I would just walk around like myself and looked like an adult. And that's the, I learned quickly that that is the opposite of what you want to be an actor. Like Ethan and Brandon looked like 12 year olds when they were 16. Mm -hmm. That is what you want to be an actor. Like you want the maturity and professionalism and experience of an older kid and then play an eight-year-old. Right. You don't want to be eight and look 16. <laughs> like, you're not getting any work, man. Like, so I kind of realized, I was like, I was the right guy for the job at the time, but I, that, it wasn't for me. And so then when you, you know, you, you were in Rick Alverson's The Comedy. Yeah. Um, how did that happen exactly? Oh, I don't know. Uh, somebody said, Friends of friends? Yeah, somebody, some, professionally, like Rick Alverson reached out to my management. They're like, uh -huh. there's an opportunity to be in this movie. Uh -huh. I had another one, there was another one that I didn't do, which was, um, I don't know why I didn't do it. But anyway, but this is the first one I was like, I guess I'll do it. What was, was, the, what was the one you didn't do? Uh, it's, it wound up being a movie starring Ewan McGregor um, as basically the director Beginners. Oh, with Christopher Plummer? Yeah. You were supposed to be Ewan McGregor's role? No, I was oh, not oh, supposed oh. to be Ewan McGregor's role. <laughs> I was supposed to be Ewan McGregor's buddy. Buddy, yeah. Mike Mills' picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was supposed to be like a minor character. You're and a character actor. Yeah, I'm a minor character actor. So... What was your experience doing the comedy? Did you enjoy, did you because that that's an unusual acting experience I would imagine. Yeah, it wasn't, it all wasn't improvised. All improv. Yeah, and I'm with two. I'm primarily improvising with two guys who improvise together all the time. Yeah, who have a long lasting, long -lasting comedy duo. Comedy duo improvising yeah. together. Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim. Yes. Yeah. And I kind of I learned some stuff on that, which is that I was like, I'm gonna just be as close to real as I can be as close mm. to myself as I can be with, with just this tinge of that I'm tolerating these horrible people, but I'm going to be slightly not like them because that doesn't make sense to me mm. to be also like them. Right. But you know, but comfortable with them and it didn't, it, I don't think I did a good job. <laughs> like I didn't engage. I didn't say yes. Oh. I looked at my phone I acted normal. Right. And I needed to take chances and I didn't. So you didn't do what you thought would be the, you know, the primary principle of improv is yes anding things. Yeah, well, I just didn't do anything. <laughs> I just was like the witness sort of. Uh-huh. And there are times when I did fine. Uh-huh. But for the most part, I just wasn't there. Did you and I underestimated what it would take. Uh-huh. Did you enjoy the the process? Sure. It was great. And uh, uh did the did did Rick Alverson ever kind of what kind of direction did you get from Nothing. Him? Nothing. I mean very little. Just yeah, like just you know, have a good like, time. You know what these guys this are. This is what the scene is. This yeah, is you what know what doing. these guys are. Go for it. Interesting. And you I'm just too uncomfortable. 
I'm not comfortable in my skin. I don't have practice getting out of that discomfort. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the best actors are, you know, dummies because they're able to, you know, they're able to be completely, they're empty vessels waiting to be filled. Yeah. You know? I mean, or, or they're just like, they have access. Not self-conscious. Th- look, I have, a, you know, a complete direct connect Fios to my self-consciousness. And I have like a dial up that's intermittent to my feelings. <laughs> so like, like, and there are other people that are just like, there's like a, there's a torrent of feelings yeah. shooting at them at all times and through them. And sometimes they're like, you know, maybe I should climb down off this table in this restaurant. And I think they are better actors because they just have access to like, yeah. oh, this is what I should be doing. Not like, I look like an idiot. And I'm yeah. like, I look like an idiot. 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 Maybe there's an idea in there. I look like an idiot. Yeah, I look yeah. like an idiot. And yeah. like, that does not make for very good acting. <laughs> you also had the opportunity to, you you, you auditioned for the HBO adaptation of The Corrections that never ended up happening. Yes, I did. When I've checked with Noah and I can say that I was going to play the brother. Oh, so you were going to get the role. No, like, but I can say that because nobody got the role. I checked with Noah. I said, can I say that I was going to? He's like, sure. Why not? Why not? Just say, yeah, there's no there's no countering evidence that I wasn't going to get it. So this is the, the, the I would imagine, as a fully formed human being, the first time you did an audition for yes. an acting audition. Yes. And you were in a room with who? Who was there? I don't remember. Noah. Was it like producers? Somebody, yeah. Like HBO people? Noah and like maybe Scott Rudin and somebody else at one point. How and was it? How, how was it nerve completely nerve wracking? No, it was just, I just, it Weird. was, it was, a, it was similar to, similar to the, um, the comedy. I got there and realized, oh, I'm, I didn't, I didn't prepare for this at all. <laughs> like th- these things happen in my life sometimes. Like I've gotten away so many times with showing up to something unprepared and winging it and dealing. Yeah. I mean, I've done it so many times. <laughs> Given speeches. Like, like, I'm like, I remember Googling shit on my phone. It's like, oh, you're going to give a speech. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, and then I'm just going to introduce them, right? And they're like, no, no, no. You get it. You know, it's like five minutes or something. I'm like, what? And I'm like on my phone, like just trying to remember stuff like that. So I don't just humiliate myself and go, I'm just wing it. And it's fine. Yeah. It's always fine. Mm-hmm. Which has allowed me to be like, never worried before I do something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, yeah, I should worry before I do something. And this is one of those cases where I'm like, I didn't know the lines. Didn't know the lines for like a few sides. Yeah. And I'm like, I wouldn't give me a job. Yeah. It's like, it's like he doesn't know the lines, but he also can't act. So it's fine. <laughs> he's a double threat. <laughs> he's like, in two or three different ways, he's threatening this production. <laughs> The triple threat is he's fat, he doesn't know his lines, and he can't act. It's really going to bring down the whole show. Don't worry, the camera adds 15 pounds, so he's going to really... Would you... Would you <sighs> is it something that you're like, I, I don't need to do that again? Or would you act in something? If I would like, love to know if I could do it if I was prepared. It yeah. doesn't mean I want to do it. I just would love to know if it's something I can't do or something I could do. Right. Similar to making the film. Like I made that short film and I was like, okay, that's interesting. 
I now realize that I didn't have a lot of the language I'd like to have. Yeah. I wonder if I had another opportunity, if I could prepare. Yeah. And if I prepared, would I feel like I could do a better job? Mm -hmm. And the same with acting. Like, like surprise, surprise, middle-aged guy who hasn't acted since high school plays showed up and couldn't act Mm -hmm. without doing a fucking thing. Moment of training. Yeah. A moment of training or preparation or anything or running lines with somebody or copying the lines in a notebook to try and get them into your brain. Like nothing. The only thing I did was after the fact, realized that there was something better I could have done. That was my preparation. Retroactively realizing that I could have done something. (laughs) And I'm curious, I would be curious to know that if, if I could do something because I'm one of those people that once in a while somebody thinks it's going to be a good idea to put me in something. Yeah. Somebody's like, you know, I really love that band. Get that guy in. He's going to do great. I've seen him on stage. He just says crazy shit. You know, it's like, I'm shit-faced, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, I say crazy shit on stage. I'm drunk. <laughs> you, you want to just get me drunk and throw me out there? It might be fine. Yeah. Like, that's something I could do, maybe. <laughs> Wing it. Have you had any... It's like the mistake people make because they've made people laugh at a party. They're going to go do stand-up. Oh, sure. Like, are you going to go do stand-up yeah. because you've been funny at a party? You're the funniest guy at the office. Yeah. Oh, go enjoy that. Yeah. Enjoy that blank void. Look <laughs> and throw yourself right in there. Did you Have you had any really funny acting offers that you said no to, like, kind of immediately that you, you can think of? Was there any weird ones? I can't remember. I don't think so. That's good. I did ask. I did. I wanted to be a. Uh, a, a you know. I've had people that have been worked. You know, worked. Were potentially going to work on uh, Star Wars movies. And I've asked if I could be a stormtrooper. Oh yeah, and they were like, "Don't be a stormtrooper," because it sucks. It sucks. The yeah. suit sucks. Yeah. It's like just be anything else. And I thought to be a good like promo, like you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. That's great. Don't I, be a stormtrooper. I actually... Th- that you think you want to be a stormtrooper until you put on the suit. That's basically what he said. Well, <laughs> I, I, I I distinctly remember when you were shooting the Drunk Girls video with Spike Jones, yeah. and I was like, hey, you should you should be in this video. And I had a show that night with my band that no one cared about, and and uh, I was like, well, maybe I'll do that. And I was like, what are... And they're like, you have to wear clothes that you don't mind ruining, and you're going to wear a mask the whole time. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to go. <laughs> It's like being a stormtrooper. Yeah, yeah. You could say you're in it, which is great, but then I can still say I'm in it, and no one would. No, who no would one, know? No one would know. Yeah. And did you lose your jacket that night? Yeah, Spike Jones stole my jacket that night. <laughs> I don't think he knew that. Oh, he did. He's like, that's the fucker that didn't want to wear a mask. And I had two hundred dollars in cash in the pocket that we were paid for the show. And when I got the jacket back, the the envelope was gone. Spike Jones. Spike Jones stole two hundred dollars from me. And, and that money was used to make her. <laughs> Worth it. Yeah. I was, a, yeah, I'm a producer. If you yeah, look you're at the a producer. For... Um, let's just so we can, we can start wrapping up. Uh, I want to ask you a couple things. One, one I'm just always curious about with people. Do you have a, a, a comfort food film? Like a movie that anytime it's on TV, anytime you see it, you'll sit down, you'll watch the whole thing from whatever point it's starting or, or a film that just makes you feel good whenever it's on. I have a couple. I mean, I have the really obvious one that, that I think most humans have, which is Shawshank Redemption, which I've seen the back oh. three quarters of. I've seen the beginning of once or twice. Right. But I've seen the rest of that movie oh, 200 times. Yeah. 
I was like, well, red. You know, it's like, it's just, it's, I'm up there. I'm sucking in watching this bullshit again. Um, I have a, I have a real soft spot for this movie, Slaves of New York, mm. with Bernadette Peters. Yeah. Based on the Tamajanowitz books. I think that they're just accurate enough and just corny and inaccurate enough that movie is just it's like i'm it would people would have been apoplectic at the the time people from the art scene would have been like this is what is this (laughs) but as someone who wasn't there explain what it is it's 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 a movie based on Tama Janowitz stories about being kind of in the downtown art scene in the mid eighties, like not like really in the thick of the Basquiat years, like after that, you know what I mean? Sort of like that kind of a weird no man's land of, of culture. Uh, everybody looks a little bit like a character out of desperately seeking Susan <laughs> and Bernadette Peters is like the girlfriend of a painter who's an asshole she wants to make hats and like Jeff Goldblum's in it as like a re- weird religious artist who wants to make like a cathedral and like uh, there's stupid parties and they, they make it, they make a movie arc. It's one of those movies where it's like, it's a story that could be interesting. It's a lot of different stories and it's like, you're trying to represent like a scene and a thing, but you're also kind of making like a Hallmark movie arc mm-hmm. so that everything can happen in a way. But there's just, I love it. I love being in that world. I love being in that like mid 80s, mid late 80s New York art scene world. It's just mm. fun. It's, I just find it enjoyable. I overlook almost anything with that movie. And it's like happy to watch it anytime. That's a good like, one. I don't think I'd ever not watch that movie. That's a good one. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's also not a popular movie. So it doesn't come on. It's not like Shawshank, which is like, on TV, 24 hours. And, oh, it's, there's never not Shawshank on. <laughs> the other thing that is my comfort food, which is really bad and it's not a movie, is uh, Law & Order. Um, it's the... SVU? SVU. Yeah. I talk, Yeah, I was talking to uh, Greta Gerwig and I are both obsessed with Law & Order SVU, and she wanted to do it. She tried, She auditioned, and they said, like, we feel like you're not taking the material seriously. And she's like, does anybody? Like, like I want to be on Law & Order SVU. Sure. I want to be, like the crazy guy who locked up old ladies, you know, in a closet. And it was just like, like, you know, you, you got nothing on me. Uh, and I want the guy to be like, get my hands on him. That old lady. I got a grandmother. Like they're all, every cop, every actor in that show, like every character is like, treats every crime and every criminal like it's the first time they've ever heard of anybody doing anything bad they're like that's a little kid you know like <laughs> they're always holding them back to stop them beating them up and it's like you know after the after like your eighth year of being in the special victims unit you might want to harden up a little you know <laughs> i i do i i have to agree with law the original flavor of law and order was always my favorite oh but there's something meditative about those shows because they're always you know, marathons. Yeah, they're, no one's ever shown one. No, 
It's always a marathon, and they're designed for marathons. Because the second one's over, it's like, bong, and there's two guys walking down the street. It's like, that was a good game of basketball. Yeah, really great game. That's a dead body. Yeah, and then yeah, like, yeah. now you got to wait <laughs> you got another hour to find out why there's a dead body. Yeah. Like, you don't even have a chance. They, 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 they don't even put a commercial between the resolution where, like, yeah. the, the person who's, like, always arrogant is now read, led away in tears. And they're like, are like, we got another one off the street. Then, bong, dead body. <laughs> well, well, we'll put it out there in the world that if that James Murphy should. Oh be my on God, I want to be on SVU. Law and Order SVU. Yeah, I want to be on with Greta. Like we that would be do a thing. That'd be a blockbuster episode. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. I'll probably cut this out, but I want to just tell you this: that a friend's band was hired to be on that show as like a Williamsburg. Like this girl's like, we're going to Williamsburg to see a band, and it's this band called the Wild Yaks. Oh my God! And they didn't read the script because. Oh if you knew these guys, you'd know that they wouldn't read the script. They were just like, yeah, there's money. Good. I'll do it. No problem. We're on, we're on TV. And so the whole premise is this woman gets raped at their show. Oh, my God. And I was like, not good promotion. You know. <laughs> That's the premise of all of those shows. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what they thought it was going to happen, but they could have just been a party scene, I guess. But. Uh, oh, my God. But yeah. Um, okay. So final two questions. Yeah. Uh, the big two. Yeah. Tony Scott versus Ridley Scott. I didn't do enough homework on this one. Okay. Well, just this, the, 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 then all of what you said previously is true. You're winging it. Yeah. It's, it's true. Follow your heart. Follow your gut. It's you personally, too. It's not like uh a... I don't know. I don't know what they did. <laughs> Ridley Scott made Blade Runner, right? Blade, Blade Runner. He made Alien. Okay. Um... He's made, I mean, he's made a lot of films. I suddenly feel like Bill Burr. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck they make. Who is this guy? What the fuck they make? That one. That one's good. And Tony, Tony has made, he, he his first film was The Hunger. Okay. Um, so, and then I think his second, or I can see where you're going was, with this. was Top Gun. I hate Top Gun. Fuck that movie. Okay. I, I hate, I hate those fucking uh, wrote it on a those high concept like I just think that stuff's shit. What do you high concept? What do you mean? Like Ace in love with an instructor, make a movie. You know, like there's like kind of like uh -huh. one one like elevator pitch movies that the, uh -huh. that the, 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 all those elevator pitch movies that came out around then. Yeah, I'm certainly not gonna make a huge. I'm not Top Gun's on a hill. I'm willing to die on particularly. <laughs> Although I could, I could. <laughs> I know you could. I could. I know you um, could. It's um, good filmmaking, isn't it? But he did, you know. Then he did, of course, he did the uh, the Top Gun with race cars. That's what the Tom Cruise movie did. That as yeah, well. it's another movie. All the Denzel stuff, like towards the end. What do you mean all the Denzel? Un like Den 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 Denzel's still around? No, no. Towards the end of Tony Scott's life, right? Okay. So they were they were like a team for a while. They did the remaking of Taking Pelham One Two Three. They did Unstoppable. Um, he made a great. Film in the eighties with Kevin Costner called Revenge. I mean, you're really. What, what else is? What other the Denzel movies did he make? Which other ones did he make? Yeah, he made Unstoppable. He What's made, Unstoppable? It's about a train that stops. It should be called Stoppable. Isn't know. the Pelham One Two Three kind of about a train? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he two, just likes two trains? train. Two train films. So uh, Wait, he he, dire he directed True Romance also. He directed 31 films. Uh, so Man the, on Fire. Man on Fire, which is so sick. I like Man on Fire, but I didn't think it was particularly good. But I liked Deja it. Vu, which is not great. Days of Thunder. Spy Game. Crimson Tide. 
Enemy of the State, the fan. True Hello, Romance, Last Boy Scout, Days of... Yeah, Revenge, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Top Gun, The Hunger. Prometheus? He's a producer on that. Okay. That's Ridley. Okay. And Ridley is... He also did the A-Team. Yeah, he did some. he's done some TV. No, so the, he did. the film of the A-Team. Tony did that? Yeah. Oh. Looks like it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's in his or movies. It could, or it could be a, produ- could be a producer. It could be a producer credit. Right. Uh, All the Money in the World. This is Ridley. Alien Covenant. The Martian. Exodus. The Counselor, which I think is a hell of a film. What's The Counselor? It's um, written by Cormac McCarthy. He was basically like, Ridley Scott was like, I'd like you to write a script for me. And he goes, I'll write you one, but you can't give me any notes. and You have to make it as is. And he said, okay. It's got Brad Pitt. Javier Bardem, it's completely nuts, and it's quite good. And it's ended a few friendships that I've recommended it to people. Really, they, they really dislike it. Prometheus, he, they did the he did Robin Hood, Body of Lies, American Gangster, Black Hawk Down, Hannibal, Gladiator, GI Jane. Oh, White Squall was the movie he made. That that's the one I thought Ethan Hawke was in, but he's not. Okay. Thelma and Louise, Black Brain, Legend, Blade Runner, Alien. That's a you know rough overview. Gotcha. It seems like you're a Ridley man. Well, I'm looking at Tony right now, and there's a lot of there's a lot of me not caring. Like Beverly Hills Cop Two is sticking it's, out as a movie I like. It is good. It's quite good. He also made the video short for Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone. Yes, which is the theme to his hit film Top Gun. Yeah. Well, he made The Hunger in '83. Yeah. And then. Three years later, made Top Gun, which is wild, but nothing in between. No, which I find weird. Yeah, like you it's know, a, it's a big jump. It's a big jump. I mean, he's shooting on a real aircraft character, real car- carrier, real jets. Yeah, it's all stuff I don't care about. Well, technically, it's yeah, I don't care. Okay, <laughs> it's like I mean, it's like they're telling me how great a guitar player is. I'm supposed to like a band. It's like something I don't care about. No, no, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, that is all true. That guy rips. The guy from Fish is awesome. Is he? I don't know. Isn't he a good guitar player? <laughs> I, I don't know. care. I have no but idea. I mean, is it going to make you listen to Fish? No. Okay. I, so, so to me, it's like whether, I, you know, how I feel about the movies. And you're never, you're never impressed by a technical achievement in a film? It's not that I'm impressed, impressed or not impressed as like an achievement. If somebody said like, hey, James, you're going to make a video. We have to make a video for your band. It's going to be on an aircraft carrier. We're going to get Tony Scott to do this. And like, oh, why? And like, well, he did this for, t- oh, okay. Like, I, it's, it's not germane to me. Like, it's not going to make me enjoy the movie more or less. So I, I'm not impressed unless I need that person to do something that requires that skill. Okay. If that makes any sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't about convincing you one way or the other. This was just a sort of a... I'd probably go with Ridley because I liked Blade Runner. Okay. (laughs) And I liked Alien, though I don't think it's as... I didn't like it as much as everybody else. You don't like Alien as much as everybody else? I liked it. I thought it was fine. It's a good sci-fi movie. You know, I thought it was a good movie. You know, do you think it's better than than The Thing? (sighs) When we're talking about movies where things shoot out of people's bodies, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I those are your th- those are two. I mean, films, aliens, two aliens, slicker. I, but I think I like the thing better. 
I love both of those films very much. I think Alien... But what I mean is like people definitely put Alien in this place. They don't put the thing in. Well, I think Alien, what Alien did was it was a very early kind of large budget film to take that genre sort of seriously. Yeah. And it it told more than it showed. Mm-hmm. It was cast perfectly well. Mm-hmm. The tension build is really, really strong. Mm-hmm. You never really see the creature. Mm-hmm. It's really atmospheric. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I think it's one of the early people trapped in a space yeah. with the unknown. And I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's a very impressive film. I, I liked that. it, but I mean, I like I movie. just didn't, I didn't I love the thing too. The thing is still, is a bit sillier. I just didn't think that I did. Okay. I didn't think I was supposed to care about it anymore. Like in other words, aliens, like something that I was like, I watched as a kid and I liked it. I watched Halloween. I liked that. Yeah. Thought Raiders of the Lost Ark was good. And then I move on with my life. Like, it's not something I'm like, whereas Blade Runner meant something to me in a different way. Okay. And I I, I carry Blade Runner with me a bit. Okay. And I didn't carry Alien. Didn't mean I didn't like it. No, no, that's totally fair. I just didn't carry it. It was a kid movie to me that was like scary. I don't like, I don't like think scary is something that I gravitate towards. So it's like it being super scary is just like, like it's like a roller coaster or something. Like I'm not, like that's not like, a thing to me like it's whereas i felt like like if you think about what alien is right there's an alien and it's trying <laughs> to kill everybody no just just give me a second no i am I just, the story that, is that made me that pitch makes they're me in fucking space there's an alien that wants to kill everybody those people don't want to die that's the story you can you can you can you can attach more story to it later because we've learned more about the whole alien universe. No, 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 no. But that's the move, the story. There's like an there's a there's a there's a robot guy and he's maybe bad or good and maybe they're, they're out mining and maybe it's corporations and bad stuff. But it's basically don't get killed by the alien. That's the movie. In the last third of the film, yeah. Yeah. What's the first part? It's this these people are stuck on this ship and then all of a sudden something's happening they don't know what's happening right but that's the majority let's be of it real clear. they don't know what's going don't, on don't okay so let's it's don't die in space yeah and then it's don't die because of the alien yeah i mean no but i'm just saying, like where <laughs> i'm saying like it's a really well made version of that i'm not trying to like yeah yeah it's, it's a genre film for it, sure and yeah and it's a whereas like for me it's like if I'm doing Blade Runner, Blade Runner is more flawed in some ways, probably. It's not as perfectly made of a film. It's been edited 15 times, blah, 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 blah. It's more pretentious, da, da, da. But it's still like about like, are we human? And that to me is just like a better question than don't die because of the alien. So like, I, f- I feel like I carried, so I'm not poo-pooing alien, <laughs> yeah. but I carried yeah. a movie that I'm supposed to care about and think is like meaningful or, or like have resonance. I carried Blade, Blade Runner. Runner, whereas I didn't carry Alien. The same way that I didn't carry Raiders of the Lost Ark because I don't want to be an like an archaeologist who chases things. You know what I mean? Like I like I thoroughly enjoyed Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thought it was <laughs> a, a romp. Sure. <laughs> you know, but like, you know, and this sort of like Star Wars is a funny one because like I saw it as like people in space shoot each other, blow up the big thing, and like I didn't take it to mean deeper things, and I don't think it does. I think he's trying to have it mean deeper things, but I think that's the embarrassing part. I think it's better as a movie about shooting space stuff. 
and move on. You know what I mean? Like it should live where it lives. Sure. So that's, you know, but I don't dislike any of it. Yeah. It's just like, I think, I mean, you know, to be fair, you could do a reductive synopsis of almost any movie and make it sound like I could be like, yeah, Blade Runner. It's about a detective who has to find robots. No, but to me, like the deep, like, no, no, wait, <laughs> I wait. know what you mean. But I know when you, you go deeper with alien, what makes it good? Isn't that it's deeper. What makes it good is that it's very well executed. What I think makes, that's, that's what makes right. it good is that it's like very good suspense, it's like excellent work you don't see, they don't show, like all the stuff you said. It's yeah. like, in a way, it's like Hitchcock has this disease sometimes where you're like, this is the story. It's a, you know what I mean? Don't die. Um, you know what I mean? But like Hitchcock was obsessed at that time because the world was obsessed, the intellectual world was obsessed with psych psychiatry and psychotherapy. So like there's all this weird like imbued human what's a human being in those movies, which I, th and I think that's by the time alien rolls around, we're not thinking like that. And it's just, it's, it's always in everything because they're like, Oh, the guy who's a robot's dying. And is he a person, you know? <laughs> yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I get it. And I also now, I like that this conversation went from Tony versus Ridley Scott to Ridley Scott versus Ridley Scott. <laughs> Cause I just, yeah. So the, uh, nothing says it's, it's, you know, you know, nothing says it's Ridley like I'm arguing which Ridley. Yeah, so I guess it's Ridley Scott. Yeah. It's Ridley Scott for James Murphy. All right. Um, and then finally, the question I ask everybody is a film that is generally loved by the world that you just can't stand. As a guy, we, we I mean, we to full disclosure, I did text with you about this last night. Yeah. And I have questions about this because it's like I don't, get my hackles up too much yeah i don't get like i mean i i don't like fucking et <laughs> also the way that sentence is phrased could have been better what i don't like fucking et <laughs> <laughs> i don't you know it's just a, it's a lot of work <laughs> Got to take him out to dinner. Jesus Christ. All the fucking Reese's Pieces. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, I agree. I, I hate E.T. I'm always know. trying to get me to take him home. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> uh, no, but, so E.T. was one I didn't like. Yeah. Um, it was fine as a kid. I don't know why anybody gave a shit. Yeah. That's an alien he wants to go home. Um, I'm not going to do that to every movie, but like, um, uh, so I said 16 candles. Um, yeah. but I think the world hates 16 candles now. I don't think that's true. Really? I think John Hughes films in mm. general yeah. are super beloved and 16 candles specifically is one that I think people, I think it's reactionary garbage. Like I, 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 and I've thought this for a long time and only recently in the woke current times, I showed it to yeah. my wife who was just horrified. Yeah. Like my younger, younger than me, Danish wife who was just like, what the fuck were you people watching? And I was trying to explain it. I was like, you gotta understand, like this movie was fucked up. And I was like, and it's from my memory of seeing it. Yeah. I was like, the movie's kind of about this, the main character, the Molly Ringwald character, right? Is turning 16. 
and she's in love with just a fucking rich asshole. Like that's the that's the movie. Like she loves this rich asshole. Okay, and he's supposed to be like broody and sensitive and like you know James Deany, I guess, and this reactionary you know fifties Americana way where he's like, she's just all swoony about him, and he's just like got got feels in his face, and he's got a he's got an awful girlfriend, which could only be written by a man. Like this cartoonishly gnarly girlfriend who's like, you know, like, you dumb sluts. Like treating all the, like, like looking down and lording power over everybody, which is like just like incel bait. And um, <laughs> he at some point gives her, she gets drunk. He kind of likes the the younger girl now who's turning 16. So he's done with his 17, 18 year old girlfriend who's not nice like he is, even though he's just a rich guy who has a party at his house and lets all his friends wreck his house. And he's just like on weave, like, I guess the maid will clean it. And like, so his girlfriend gets drunk and he's annoyed with her because she's trying to talk to him and she's being exactly the person he's been in a relationship with for however long this movie's supposed to be going on. <laughs> and he gives her unconscious to another guy, to Anthony Michael Hall whose name is The Geek. He doesn't have a name. He gives her, like, here, you take her. She's wasted. Do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. Please date rape my girlfriend, who I've just handed you as a possession. And he's like, all right. So Anthony Michael Hall drives <laughs> off, right? And Anthony Michael Hall likes, you know, the Molly Ringwald character. But, of course, he's getting nowhere because he's a fucking loser. Um, and she's shallow as shit. Because, essentially, it's, 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 she's a, it's, it's a guy writing a girl as a guy character. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a guy writing a girl without any understanding of what a girl would be like. There's not a single moment in it where you're like, oh, that's a girl. I didn't realize girls might have thought, you know. It's at all times just like she likes the pretty, wants her life different, goes out with an asshole, mm-hmm. wants, you know, likes the status, is shitty to somebody else. And she's the hero of the movie. You know what I mean? And in the end, we're supposed to be super psyched that after he, after. Johnny Johnny James Dean guy gives his girlfriend as a possession to be date raped by Anthony Michael Hall, which, by the way, happens. They have sex. <laughs> she doesn't remember it, and then she says to him, "You know, and I think I think we had a I think I had a good I think I enjoyed it." And you're like throwing up in if you if you haven't thrown up in your mouth yet, and you're gonna stick through it to the end of the movie. The big payoff is that like Molly Ringwald succeeds in getting kissed by this guy who handed his girlfriend over to somebody else. That's the story of the movie. And you're saying you don't like it. I don't like it. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't gotten into the long duck dong character. Yeah. That's what I was going to bring up. I, I haven't even, I haven't even needed. You don't need to, to go to the long duck dong character, <laughs> sexy American girlfriend. Like, that's not been necessary yeah. to paint this picture. I we don't have to go into any of it. Yeah. I think I think with younger generations this will be a canceled film for yeah. sure. And the thing is is like 
as much as as much fatigue as I have at times with like cancel culture. Um, and I don't even like that phrase. It seems like a, a phrase somebody made up to be both annoying and negative, but mm -hmm. um, like as a way to like shoot down social progress by coming up with a dumb name like cancel culture. <laughs> um, but I've always I've always had this hang up with this movie. Like it's always been like, what the? I remember it's the first time I saw it. I grew up in a town with a lot of Asian kids, and there was a lot of diversity in the Asian population in my town. Meaning, like there were people from different different Asian backgrounds, yeah. and they were some kids were like, you know, cartoonishly stereotype stereotypically very good students, and other kids were like in punk bands, and other kids were athletes, and it, it, I had like a lot of normalcy. So I didn't see the Long Duck Dong characters anything other than just some crazy character. I didn't understand it as a trope of like Asian racism. Right. It could have been an Italian, like it, it, I didn't. It just it could have been like yeah. you know Bambino Bambini is the character that they have. Is the <laughs> it didn't it didn't have any meaning to me. Right. Um, and I think that's partially just the sheltered way I grew up, and and simultaneously the sheltered nature of my existence, and the people that I was surrounded by, feeling like who would make this story up? This is this is dumb. Yeah. And then later, years later, I was like, oh God, like people fucking like. <laughs> This is like just how is this even slightly? I mean, it's the only thing better than Mickey Rooney and and Breakfast yeah. at Tiffany's is the fact that it's actually unfortunately an Asian guy who has to play this fucking role. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. It's Sulu. It is not. No. Um, so I don't know. The movie always drove me crazy because I kept being like, "It's it, what is what? How is this any of this?" I mean, I liked The Breakfast Club. I was fine with The Breakfast Club. I Pretty in Pink. Again, another thing that's like, I was fine with it, but I kind of didn't like that it, they re-recorded that Psych First song because I much prefer the original Psych First version. <laughs> and I didn't like that it's like, who wants Spader? Like, your choice is Spader or Ducky? Like, come on. Yeah. Like, asshole or goofball? Can you just be like a normal person that you can try to date for a minute? Um, and um, I, I don't know. I just, that movie always drove me crazy. And it... it it kind of turned me off of like teen movies mm. and and you had asked me to come up with a recommendation for a movie to watch instead of it. Yeah. Now I'm going to recommend a movie I haven't seen in a very, very, very long time. So it's I have okay. no idea how it will hold up. Okay. Both in terms of like the social now and uh -huh. in terms of like as a movie. But I remember being absolutely shocked by it when I saw it because it was not the movie that I thought it was going to be in any way, shape or form. Okay. It's The Last American Virgin. Oh, yeah. Because in this movie, the from my memory, and this is like from a long, long time ago, I thought it was going to be like somewhere between 16 Candles and Porky's. Yes. <clears throat> like that's sort of like what I was. That's kind of how they marketed it. Fast so. Times at Ridmont High yeah. and, you know, and it's. This super weird movie. Yeah. Um, it's a remake of an Israeli movie. Um, and the le the main character is just kind of a schlub um, who's friends with like a guy who's like kind of a womanizer. And he falls in love with this new girl who moves into town. And the womanizer guy is like, I'm going to try and she's a virgin. I'm going to try and have sex with her. <clears throat> and he's trying to like get in, get in there to stop this from happening. And the guy succeeds, having, then they have sex, and she gets pregnant. 
And then he like sells all his possessions basically and borrows money to pay for an abortion for her. And he's kind of using this manipulatively to like be in her good graces and she's warming to him and like they share a kiss or something. And then like a little bit later he goes to her birthday party and she's making out with that guy again. And then he leaves. Yeah. And I'm like, that is not the movie I thought I was going to be watching. (laughs) And I remember just being like, this is a lot more, in a way, believable. Yeah. In that he's not the hero. He's just the, he's the protagonist. He's the one we're watching this through. You don't dislike the girl. You want him to get together with her. You like their relationship and their dynamic. But you do understand why she goes for the, the asshole. Yeah. Like, you get it. And you also, he doesn't get off scot-free. It's not like, there's no, it's not like the, the girlfriend that, that the guy gives away in 16 Candles, who's just like comically nasty so that you can feel okay about the n- fucked up shit that he does. Yeah. And then suddenly she's nice. You know, it's total man writing a woman. Like she's just awful and unredeemable. And then now she's nice. Yeah. Because we need that to happen. Yeah. Um, it's instead it was like you kind of empathize with a lot of the people and it just doesn't work out and it's painful. And that seemed to be, I did not expect to get that from a movie called the last American Virgin with like a stupid cover, which I thought was going to be like teen sex romp. Yeah. It's a much darker film and a much more like human film in a weird way. It's, I think it's closer to, last picture show than it is to (laughs) John Hughes films. But but I thought it was going to be like a sub John Hughes. Totally. I thought it was going to be like, you know, that is totally how it was marketed. Like John Hughes film by, by way of Hooters. I think a lot of people who saw it, you know, back when they were younger, it left a big impact on them. Yeah. Because of, for that exact reason, this expectation versus reality. Yeah. And I was shocked. It's a much better film than it needed to be for sure. Yeah. And so that that I was using as my like, but again, I that's good. Don't hold me, don't hold against me if this movie's fucked up and is like, don't hold it against me if it's like just racist all over the place because <laughs> I don't remember. I think you're safe with that. One. God, you never know, man. <laughs> Everything you just watch, I, you watch. I mean, even my mother, um, in she she died in 2001, so it's like long before that, before they moved to Cape Cod. So it would have been like early 90s. We were watching. Uh, it was after like people had started trying to like make TV less white. Like, you know, they'd have yeah. like, you know, an interracial couple in an ad for Folgers or something. And people would just lose their minds. <laughs> we gotta boycott Folgers. <laughs> and uh there was like one of those Christmas either um one of the stop action Christmas movies about like but yeah. But uh Oh yeah, like the Santa Claus Sa- uh, Rudolph the Red Rose Reindeer. Yeah, I think it was Frosty the Snowman or something. Yeah. And my mother was just like sitting there and she was like, Jesus. I was like, what? She's like you never think that all everyone in these things is white. And my mom was like the not woke. Like yeah. she was just like some old Boston lady, you know. But to have her back then be like, wow, you know, you kind of don't realize. Yeah. Like all this stuff that everybody's white in it. Because, you know, they made, you know, and I think it's the same when you go back and watch these things, you'll realize like, wow, it's just like every opportunity, like in certain period of film and television, like a black person doesn't walk on the screen. Without something fucked up, without sure. without like some fucked up, uh, you know, thing about them happening, without yeah. it being the joke, or like nobody just shows up and does anything. Yeah, 
it's pretty it's pretty so last american virgin who the fuck knows what goes on there well movie? and all, I, I was i was it reminds me of uh, revenge of the nerds when you talked about oh. 16 candles that again the, the protagonist of the film the rape somebody yeah that's yeah he's the hero and then she's like he but he does it so well that oh, she's, of course she dates him so it's just it's just straw dogs that have you having to face the nightmare <sighs> It's so late in the podcast to start comparing Revenge of the Nerds to Straw Dogs, but now I want to. Now I want to. Oh, that's, uh, a, that's where we, we just landed there. Because Peckinpah, he's got a delicate touch when it comes to the ladies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't get to mention my favorite director. Who? Leos Carax. Well, let's talk about it. I, did, I, did, I realized that when we were doing, I was doing research to try well, to remember things. Well, there's two more things. There's two. Well, there's two more things we can talk about, and I can cut them in. Okay. Um, one, I think it's stupid that I have not brought up Shut Up and Play the Hits. I think we maybe should touch on that for a second. Sure. The experience of shooting it. Um, the experience of shooting it was just being a person and not the camera. Yeah. So it's not like I, I didn't. I, the experience of editing it's a big job, but the experience of shooting it is like playing a concert. Um. There wasn't. There wasn't. You know, there's a, there was some there was stuff done like there's yeah. self consciousness like oh we're gonna walk and you walk over there yeah we're gonna be up here, but you didn't you found it pretty easy to yeah to do because I was distracted by the real thing of like it wasn't it. supposed to be a big deal right like the movie wasn't supposed to be it initially started as a BBC thing and I was gonna do all this like um, dream sequence stuff like I was like really excited to do all these weird things like you know. Just like have these dream sequences that would be funny, I thought so your love of eight and a half absurdist, yeah, and and then it just wasn't going to work out, and I didn't have time, I didn't have the energy to do it, and they also were just like, why don't we just follow you around? Um, so it wasn't like it built momentum and <clears throat> and work and effort and steam mo- more so after it was done. Right. Like more so after it was shot. Because then I'm like, oh, I've got to go, you know, mix all this music. And I got to like, you know, like it became much more of a big deal after the concert. Because before that, my mind was mostly occupied with the concert. Were you heavily involved in the editing of the film? Not the film. I was heavily involved in the editing sound. of the concert and of the mixing of the sound. Yeah. But it it suddenly dawned, it, it kind of like came to be like, oh, this is like, you don't know that anyone's going to watch anything. Sure. And we're going to play a show and so they're going to film it. And, you know, it started as a BBC thing and like, who's this company pulse and why is anyone going to care? Yeah. And it, uh, so it became, it took more of my mind up later. Like when it came out and I had to deal with that. But during the making of it, it didn't occupy a lot of my brain. And I think we'd be remiss not to mention that Reed Morano was the DP who, um, was obviously esteemed then, but now is like yeah. She was a superstar DP then. Like she, she was, but, she's it was nuts level. that we had her then, yeah. and it's laughable now. <laughs> like it was pretty like, hey, wow, if you know things, it's pretty crazy that we got read. Yeah, and now it's just like, why on earth would she bother with your stupid thing? It looks great too. Yeah. She did a great she's job. She's amazing. She's an amazing yeah. DP. Um, so. It's you brought you brought it up, but I wanted to I, I wanted to talk about it anyway. I, this idea of having favorites is such a it's hard to I, I it well, switches for me all the time. But you you said that you have a truly favorite director. It's easy for me because I'm not 
trying to like if you ask me what my favorite band is that's hard I'll, yeah I'll, 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 I'll say the fall but it'll be suicide next day you know or whatever but with films i'm not trying to be right i'm just trying to know that there's a moment in my life when certain things hit me and they hit me in a way and they left they kind of left a mark on me and i think the leos carax movies did that to me because i saw them close to when they came out like i saw eight and a half long after it came out on yeah. video when i but i saw the mauvais song uh like within a year of it coming out on video okay and i was looking at the synopsis of it mm-hmm. and i was like god i don't this a story i don't care like i was realizing i was like all of the movies I was looking at, Les Amants Ponif and uh, Boy Meets Girl and Mauvais Sound, and I was like, oh, I don't really care about these, what, what the movie was about. Like, Mauvais Sound is about, <clears throat> there's like this sexually transmitted disease that's transmitted by people having sex that they don't, when they don't care. Right. It's a great concept. Yeah. And then there's people trying to get the, trying to get the, um, the antidote. And there's some rich American lady who's hired these criminals to get the antidote. And they hired Dennis Levant's character to like, because his dad was a great thief <clears throat> to be their guy. Whatever. I don't think of that at all when I think of that movie. What do you think of? I think about two people that are, for whatever reason, not supposed to be together, being together finding a way to to be with one another and dealing with the struggle of of developing that connection which is at times electric and at times a struggle like i I think about this there's a there's a moment in that movie that's like my favorite moment in movies and it's juliette binoche wakes get wakes up She's got like this robe on her pajamas and she does this really weird stretch where she like makes a weird face and stretches and stuff like that. And Dennis Levant's character is kind of watching her without her realizing it. And it was the first time I really watched something that was like, oh, this is just a weird thing that a person does when they think no one's viewing them. Mm-hmm. And you don't see that in movies very much. When people are like, because the movies are all about like, how do I get this story moving? You know, how do I get this? It's like, okay, when when someone's alone we're only showing them alone because we want you to know something that's pertinent to the story about them. Like they've been like, okay, it's great to meet you. All right, Carol, I'll, I'll talk to you Wednesday. And the door closes. And then suddenly he's like, all you know, mad. And you're like, Oh, that wasn't true. What he said to Carol, you know, mm-hmm. or we've learned like that. He's, Oh no, I'm going to be fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. And then he sits down and cries. Like right. we, you know, we're learning, we're, we're using this alone time to tell you something that we're not supposed to see. People don't display the truth about them. They don't display the the convenient facts when they're alone. They pick their noses. They get their hands down their pants. They like, you know, they make weird sounds. Or at least I do. Like, I've always just been weird <laughs> alone. And aloneness is such a thing you don't know about other people. It's the, it's the unknown. Yeah. We really don't know what people alone are like. And this weird gesture of hers was like this, this weird, it's as if someone spoke a secret language to me. Like someone's like, people do weird things alone, just like you do. Yeah. And I found it to be like this really moving 
thing. And then Dennis Levant watching it. And you're like, you're now in his eyes. Yeah. And I found like that it's about that movie's about that. That movie's about him suddenly breaking into a dance while running to modern love because the director thought that would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. That's what that movie's about to me. Like, that's what I cared about about that movie. I didn't care, you know, like it wasn't that important the rest of the story. Like, and that's that moment stuff that I'm like, that stuck with me. And that's what I love about his movies. There's, they're mannered and pretentious and very of their time. Like the color light splashes and the cinematography is really intense. And Dennis Lamont's the weirdest actor. He's like, he's like a gymnast. Like he's like an acrobat or a circus performer. Yeah. And that's that's totally right. And it's, he's like a mime circus performer with a really weird face. Yeah. And I, he's like one of my favorite actors. Yeah. I think he's pretty singular. Yeah. And it's just like, He's at all times just making weird choices. And I think that whole movie's those movies are just about weird choices like that. Yeah. And like that's what I want. Like I want to see that. And I I think I know that I can't do that. I couldn't make that movie. You couldn't find sort of the the poetry and in, inside of the I'm suddenly it's a it's a re, I can read a book. Yeah. And I can know that I'm going to struggle with long form. I know that about myself. I can struggle making a novel. But I know how to write. Yeah. And I can listen to a song and I can say, like, well, maybe I don't have a voice like that, but I can make music. Yeah. But watching movies like that, I'm like the person who really likes music and just is puzzled by how anyone makes it. Mm. And is just in awe of musicians. I'm suddenly that person that I always puzzled. I don't understand you. What do you mean? Like, well, they just like it just comes out of them. And you're like, that's not how it works. But I'm that way with films like that. Yeah. And him in particular. I absolutely am just like, I love it. And I'm just moved by it. And I'm, I'm not even sure how you'd ever wind up making that decision. What's your, what, 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 what would you be if someone were to start, had never seen a film of his, what would be, um, I, I would, would be start, your jump off? Point? I would say Move San because that's the first one I saw. And I loved it. And then I watched, and then I went back and watched Boy Meets Girl. And then I watched Les Amantes de which came out after that. Mm-hmm. And those three, they're all his other movies are great, but those three were hit me. They were like the three records that came out when I was in high school that right. mattered. You know what I mean? Like that I'm irrationally more attached to than other things he's done because of when they, when I found them. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, I think everybody has that a little bit. Like when you find stuff to you, that's what matters. Sure, I think also the first time you see films that it isn't so plot determined yeah. is a huge thing. I mean, Claire Denis was a big one for me Yeah, that you're dropped in for, you know, not all of her films, but a, a large portion you're dropped in with these characters for this moment in time. It doesn't, there's no beginning, middle or end. And then you're pulled out from there. Yeah. And those people continue on and you're, you, you just can't see it anymore. I, yeah. I mean, whenever I find that with anybody, whenever I find that kind of, I mean, I'm also super impressed when a movie is structured and it does its job well. Absolutely, yeah. But like, man, I remember watching Dead Man, and there's that scene where the, like, it's like the Native American guy takes his hat and he puts on his hat and goes, just like opens his mouth and does like this weird imitation of like white man talking, sort Mm of like, and puts it back down. And then it's supposed to be a moment unseen by someone else. And I felt like just that gave me a little bit of that, scratched a little bit of that itch of like watching someone who's not seen. 
Yeah. Like I, I just love that, that that's what they choose to do with that moment. Not like he's secretly, you know, making sure he's got his knife. You know, we're like, yeah. you know, most of the time when, when, when someone's unseen, they need to tell you what's going to happen. They need to like give you some idiotic piece of information. Yeah. The worry that this is something that also slows a film down as opposed to enriches. Them. Yeah. Like, like I think plots with, with some exceptions, plots work better when they feel like they're naturally moving through moments and that because those moments matter and those moments not matter to the plot, but they matter to the life. And I think there's a difference. I think yeah. people become obsessed with like the plot mattering. The moments only mattering to the plot. I think that we've been I think people are trained to watch something that follows a traditional structure. And also there are things are explained and the movie ends and it's explained to you what happened and why yeah. things happened. And that's it. And, and you know, I find it's usually the films that I'm less excited about. Yeah. Um, are the ones that spell everything out for you. That said, I'm gonna I'll name two really structured movies that I thought were just like great. Okay. Um, one of them is escaping me right now, but the other one is Ru- Rushmore. <laughs> yeah. Remember the first time I saw Rushmore, I was just floored. I was like, I didn't understand why it worked so well. Yeah. Uh, that I that I plotted it. Like I got a, a, a note paid out and I wrote all the scenes out and I was like, why is this working so well? I was trying to like figure out the alchemy of it. Mm. <clears throat> and there's one thing that that I hinged on and it made me think that this is why it works so well. And that was, there's a scene in the library where the, the main character is talking to um, the teacher that he's mm-hmm. in love with. Mm-hmm. And she is grading papers or something and she's drinking a glass of water and she has the water and she's looking at the paper and she puts it down. And before she puts it all the way down, she hovers just above the table to make sure that she puts it down very quietly. <clears throat> and I was like, that is what people do when you're trying to be quiet. For sure. Mm-hmm. It's an unconscious thing you do when you're trying to be quiet. It's not something you do if you're not trying to be quiet. Yeah. And it's not something you do, I don't think it's something people think of when they say, you're in a library, be quiet. They'll, you'll whisper, you'll do these other things. But I was like, they must have had a really quiet set. Because that, you know, they go bustle, bustle, okay, let's get everybody ready. We're going to do this again. All right, and action, everybody remember. Now, that's not a thing. That's not a human experience that you're going to now instinctively try to maintain quiet after. Right. Because it was just noisy. So part of me thinks that, like, maybe I'm wrong, but at least gave me the impression of the real, there was so, so many layers of believability in this otherwise absolutely not believable movie. That everybody committed oh, yeah. to it just totally being believable, like him doing these plays, like you know him, you know every relationship is totally unbelievable. But its its internal logic was so strong, mm-hmm. both like cinematically, like what it looked like was so strong and singular. I'd never seen anything that looked quite like that, and like the way everybody acted, everyone, everyone's type of hyped up acting was the same. Yeah. Like everyone was different. Like Bill Murray acts differently than this person, but like the the kind of hyperbole that's like layered was all cohesive. Like it was a vision, and I remember just absolutely loving it. Like loved it so much. All right, another episode in the bag, part two. James Murphy, thanks for listening. Um, I want to give you guys a couple of little addendums. Uh, just to elaborate on some stuff we talked about 
one of the things was the film that James acted in alongside uh, Tim and Eric. It's called The Comedy, and it's directed by a guy named Rick Alverson. And I wanted to talk about him for a second. So The Comedy was his debut film, and Tim Heidecker is the star of that film, and he plays a really complex, difficult character. The film's difficult. Hard to watch at times, really funny at others. it's 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 a it's a tough watch sometimes, but it's I think a fascinating one, and totally worth checking out. Uh, and his follow up is a film called Entertainment, which I think is a complete masterpiece, but no less difficult than the comedy. It stars a guy named Greg Turkington, who you probably know. Uh, and in the film, he's playing an alter ego that he plays in real life. This kind of hacky sort of Vegas strip, washed up comic, stand-up comic named Neil Hamburger. They call him Neil in the film. They don't say his last name. Um, And it has a lot of great supporting actors in it as well. It's just beautifully shot. And I would liken it closer to a horror film than a comedy or a drama. It's just, it's, it's bleak. It's pretty brutal. It's beautifully shot. Um, I love, love, love this film, and uh, I think it didn't get enough attention, and I highly recommend it. Uh, and then he made another film after that called The Mountain with Jeff Goldblum, which is also pretty fascinating and very beautifully shot. He's a director that I will watch anything he makes from this point forward. I, I've liked all of his films, um, so check that stuff out. And you can see James act, and I'm not using quote fingers. I, I'm not. Um, and I also wanted to give some recommendations for fight films, for boxing films, because we talked about that a little bit. I wanted to give you guys a couple. I'm not going to overload you, but just a few that I love. Um, the first one is a film starring Humphrey Bogart from 1956 called The Harder They Fall. Uh, it's amazing. Um, Humphrey Bogart plays kind of a crooked... He, he plays a sports writer who gets caught up in a crooked scheme that involves boxing. And it is fantastic. Highly, highly recommend. Another one, Fat City, directed by John Huston, starring a young, very hot Jeff Bridges and a young, very hot Stacey Keach. Uh, depressing as hell, but awesome. Uh, we've mentioned it, I think, in every podcast we've done. Everybody I've interviewed has said something about that film. Uh, highly recommend it less of a boxing film in some ways and more of a character study but it it's definitely falls in the genre and I couldn't recommend it more uh, and another really fun one that I think people has kind of gotten lost to the sands of time a little bit is Hard Times with Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin uh, Jill Ireland is in there of course and Struther Martin uh, and it is the directorial debut of Walter Hill if you don't know Walter Hill you do I'm sure you may not know his name but He's most famous for The Warriors, which is a lot of fun. That film is great. But he's done a lot more stuff than that, and there's a lot of great stuff. Uh, Watch The Driver. Watch Southern Comfort. Um, He wrote the screenplay to Alien. Uh, And if you can find the actual script online, it's a beautifully written screenplay. James, Alien is very good. (laughs) But Hard Times is a great film. It's set during the Depression, uh, 
Charles Bronson plays a a guy who's a train hopper is trying to survive and he meets up with Lee Marvin and they start doing these bare knuckle boxing to, you know, make some money. And it, it's just a great, 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 great film. So recommend pick to click. So I promised to also expand on the Spike Jones story. Um, basically what happened was they were shooting the drunk girls video and I did not, I was not in the drunk girls video. I opted out because I had a show with, my band uh, at the time, Violent Bullshit, was playing a show. But I met up with them afterwards at a bar, and much drinking happened. And Spike and I were wearing the same jacket, which was a black pea coat. It was popular at the time. And uh, he left, and I was hanging out for a while, and then I left, and I couldn't find my jacket. And I was drunk. <laughs> so I walked around trying to find it for a while, then I assumed I just lost it. Because, you know, I was drunk or someone had stolen it. The next day, James called me and said that Spike took off his jacket and in the pocket was an envelope that said violent bullshit and had $200 in it. And James goes, that's Jay's jacket. We got the jacket back. It was handed off to a doorman and given to the bass player of violent bullshit at the time, Matt Cash. Matt opened the envelope. $200 gone. Could it have been the doorman? Sure. Could someone have stolen it at the bar? Possibly. Is it more likely that it was a very successful Oscar-winning filmmaker, Spike Jones, that stole my 200 bucks? I think that's probably the answer. So go to uh, jasongreen.org for the show notes. There's lots of notes, lots of links to fun stuff. Um, follow us on Instagram, which is 24-hour video. Uh, that's all letters, no numbers, 24-hour video. Follow us there. The music, as always, is done by Nicholas Milheiser with vocal stab from Nancy Wong. Like, subscribe, give us stars, tell your friends. Um, it all helps. I appreciate it. Next episode is with the amazing filmmaker Bruce LeBruce. And the interview is Chef's Kiss. Mwah. Fantastic. So we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to 24 Hour Video. I love you very much.